Blog Talk Radio. everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. My name is Buddy Buscemi, your host. It is Sunday, July 16th, 2017. It's 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time here on the East Coast of the United States. And tonight I am joined by special co-hosts, Owen McIntyre and Eric Burke. Welcome, guys. <laughs> hey, what's well, up? You know, I mean, yeah, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> How are you guys? You're 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 messing up my whole week because you're getting my Tuesday night routine happening on a Sunday. So gotcha. Um, well, yeah, ask me again tomorrow when I'm wandering around thinking it's Wednesday. So you know, other than that, <laughs> we're doing fine. <laughs> Fabulous so, over um, here. Right. So our our traditional co-host uh, Bill Stegall was not able to make it tonight. Um, there's a few rumors going around as to why he can't make it. Um, you know, I think Eric and Ellen probably have the best reason why he couldn't make it. Would you like to share it with everyone, guys? He's well, acquiring um, some new royal pythons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my excuse was he was playing around with the stuff at work and accidentally knocked himself unconscious. So, you know, you know that. <laughs> Oh, gotcha. Okay, well, um, <laughs> my theory is his frozen drink machine was broken, and he's waiting on a serviceman to come fix it. You know, I, I, I hear you have to have a frozen drink to host uh, TTP Keeper Radio. So, I mean, right, yeah, right. there you go. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks one, for coming right? on. I appreciate you. Yes, you do. Sure. It's uh, It's the first time you've had both of us on at the same time normally it's like you know you bring eric on for the serious shows and then you you know you bring me on when you absolutely have to so you know that's (laughs) kind of how it seems to go so having both of us on on the same show this is this is a weird thing i think we've only ever done one other show i think we did an episode of corrales radio um together at one point yeah and that's all I can remember. So yeah, there you go. You, you privileged. <laughs> gotcha. Oh man. So, but I think it's I, I think it's appropriate because the topic we're going to talk about tonight is doesn't just affect chondros. It does affect. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it can affect other species of uh, our favorite animals of pythons, and um, so I think it's kind of appropriate. We've kind of come together to uh, welcome our 
guests on who are uh, Cody and Pia Bordellini. And also we have uh, Dr. Susan Fogelson. She's a doctor of veterinary medicine who spe specializes in pathology. Um, so we're, it's going to be an informational show tonight about uh, something I'm kind of new to or have not don't have much experience with is the a, a virus called the nidovirus. So uh, are you guys ready? Do you think we should bring them on now, or do you need to talk about something else? No, uh, no you can bring them on. I don't, I don't got to talk to Eric. He's fine. I'll, I'll talk to him too. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Cody and Pia, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the Sunday evening. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You are welcome. Let's uh, bring on Susan. Hello. Thank you for having hello. me. Hello. I appreciate being invited. Thank, yeah, thank you for coming on. It's always great to have a... Uh, someone who has a veterinary experience to kind of guide us keepers who don't have much medical background uh, along the pathway of understanding exactly how these illnesses affect our animals and, and what the implications are, both short-term and long-term. So thanks for coming on. We, we certainly appreciate you. Absolutely. So... Um, Let's let's get right into it. So, Cody and Pia, do you mind uh, giving us uh, some background about yourself as keepers and how you got involved with chondros and and uh, that type of uh, information? So you say we only have what three hours? Man, I don't even know if that's enough to cover <laughs> cover mine. You know, I yeah, I, I wish I could speak in bullet points, um, but I generally speak in paragraphs, and I've, anybody who knows me will attest to that. So I could definitely be long-winded, and I will do my best to uh, keep it short and move on because you guys want to hear about the good stuff, not necessarily hear, hear me blabbing about myself. Um, but uh, I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, you know, and everybody seems to, to think that uh, you're really cool for growing up in Las Vegas and, and, and really uh, – <laughs> You know, it, I, I couldn't get, I couldn't wait to get out of that city. I think it's a, you know, probably a great place to live or to, to visit, um, you know, for a weekend, but maybe not the best place to live. But fortunately, um, you know, being into <clears throat> herps ever since I was a little kid, um, <clears throat> before, um, before Las Vegas was the developed city it is now, you know, you had vacant lots on every corner and, you know, the neighborhood kids were out there flipping rocks for banded geckos and sidewalks, lizards and stuff. And, of course, at the time, you know, you didn't know what those were, but you were just out there catching stuff to do it. And, you know, going to the local library at school to pick out the three books that they had to try to, you know, figure out what it was. And, of course, there wasn't a whole lot, at least for me, to access as a kid because, I mean, you know, you don't have connections or networks or <laughs> know who to talk to. So you're, like, trying to figure this out from scratch and, you know, keeping everything and, you know, unfortunately killing a lot of stuff to learn how to keep it right and um, eventually breed it and, you know, be a part of, you know, conservation efforts and, and all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of my interest and background is in uh, venomous reptiles and crocodilians. And, um, you know, uh, other than being in, in Nevada, um, you, you know, you have a, a couple options. You could either be a, a bartender, you can 
uh, deal cards. You can be a stripper, um, you know, and those those kind of weren't, weren't things that I wanted to, you know, things that I wanted to do. Um, I always wanted to uh, work with reptiles before I knew that I had to make a living and, and pay the bills. Um, you know, I wanted to work with these animals. Um, and uh, my interest in, in venomous um, uh, led me uh, to do some pretty pretty awesome things in um, in herpetology. And, you know, one of the things, like I said, I'll try to keep it really brief, but uh, growing up in Nevada, uh, you know, we had all these really cool, um, you know, different native species and, and what have you. And, and venomous were always just on, on the top of my interest, uh, looking at books, or, you know, and everything. There was just something very... Um, uh, beautiful about venomous reptiles, you know, and this is before, you know, it's like, you're not thinking about, oh, this is to be cool or, um, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're keeping them just for, because of the fact that they're venomous, but it was a sincere interest in the animals themselves. And, uh, you know, I started, I got my first venomous snake when I was, uh, 11 years old, actually, um, keeping stuff as a young kid. I've, I've read corn snakes and, and things like that, but, but read a, a ton of books on venomous species and uh, going to the local pet store that I basically grew up at, you know, I was always asking how I could get venomous species. And of course, the responsible thing that the, you know, the pet store owner said was, you know, you shouldn't be keeping venomous or working venomous and certainly not an 11 year old. And definitely I don't condone 11 year olds having venomous snakes, but um you know, I mean, that, that's kind of how I got my start. My, my step, uh, my, uh, my father passed away when I was in third grade, and my uh, mom remarried later on, and the person that she remarried um, was into reptiles, didn't have a reptile collection, but was very interested, and I was talking about my fascination for venomous species, and, you know, he was under the belief that, hey, if you could keep them and you're doing it responsibly and you're doing, you know, you're using all the right tools and you're clearly being responsible, then there's no reason why you shouldn't have them. I mean, parents let their kids ride dirt bikes and put themselves at risk doing that. And then that's okay. But if, of course, if it's a venomous snake, you know, it's immediately taboo or, you know, they're, I always say I either had the best parents in the world or the most neglectful, uh, you know, <laughs> horrible parents in the world for letting me have venomous reptiles so young. And, uh, you know, I, I remember finally breaking down the pet store owner, Ken Foose, you, you know, he was basically like, uh, you know, like my, my uncle growing up, like, you know, he's going into the shop and stuff. And he finally said, listen, okay, well, you know, if you're serious about this, if you go out there, you know, you go out in the deserts after dark and cruise the blacktop roads, you know, as it starts getting, um, getting dark outside, uh, during the right time of year, you'll, you'll find them crossing the roads, you know? And, um, so we went out, uh, one night and, um, I remember we, we went by a, a gopher snake that just got hit by a car and it was a bummer that the snake got hit, but it was exciting because we knew that there were actually snakes on the road. So we might find a rattlesnake. And, um, and, uh, we were driving, my stepfather said, I think I saw a snake, but I'm not sure. I just went over it. Let's see. You know, so we stopped, we got out of the car and I put the spotlight on it. And, and sure enough, it was a panamint speckled rattlesnake. They're now, they're now just called panamint rattlesnakes for tallest, uh, Stevens eye, um, but it, probably about a, you know, a 16 inch animal, powder blue, beautiful, just it immediately kind of froze like, oh, oh no, you know, and it was probably like an alien abduction for, for this little <laughs> rattlesnake because it was in the middle of the road doing its thing, you know, these, these headlights fly over it, you know, and then they stop, get out all these tall you know, figures standing over them and grabbing them with, 
you know, hooks and tongs and whatever, putting him in the bucket. But um, I just remember looking at that snake, and it, it was just a second where we stopped and looked at it. And I, I never even saw one in a zoo at that point. Um, and it was just – I was hooked. I was immediately hooked. And um, yeah, and venomous, and I've been keeping venomous ever since. Um, now, tying this into chondros, like I said, I don't speak in bullet points. It's, it's long-winded paragraphs. But after I talk – these guys could go right for it, and I'll just kind of chime in every, every once every once in a while. But um, yeah, so after um, after we, I, I started, that first speckled rattlesnake was a chain of events of going out herping all the time, getting all you know your native stuff, and of course that leads to well, as you guys know, with with all these species that you keep, you have them for a little bit, and then it's kind of okay. What's the next thing? What's the the the, the rare thing or something different that I haven't had, you know, you might be looking at the same things for a long time, but then notice them a couple years later and then they become, you know, something that you have to have. Well, exotics were always, of course, high on the list, exotic venomous, because we could have, we could legally have native venomous reptiles, but we couldn't have exotic venomous reptiles. And of course you want, if you can keep native, you want what you, you want what you can't have. And, you know, so, oh man, a white lip tree viper, a, a black mamba, a green mamba. Wow. This, uh, you know, you could get these and you know this is when the internet first started or not first started but when i when i was hopping on there and you you got your various different forms and stuff and oh man there's there's people that have classifieds that live in places that you can have them and um they're not that far away so you call them up and you talk to them and you know you find creative ways to get those snakes to you and um you know, be, before too long, I, I had, uh, you know, and this is a short story, um, a very large, beautiful, exotic collection of illegal reptiles in Las Vegas. So you could, you could be, a, you know, prostitution is legal in certain parts of, of Las Vegas, um, and you could drink and gamble to your heart's content. But, man, if you want to appreciate local wildlife or exotic wildlife and breed it, and uh, enjoy it, and be one of the few people that don't, you know, uh, try to try to kill it and stuff you know you're a criminal um so i kept mm. i kept very quiet with my exotic collection for a long time and uh you know because you had to and i'm i'm not advertising it there's no facebook at this time so i'm just a, a kid enjoying his beautiful exotic collection of dangerous reptiles and um uh to, to, to wrap this story up going into the chondros um you know i i kept exotic venomous for the better part of a decade um, in Nevada and, um, not, uh, and then somebody that I had purchased the snake from got, um, you know, as the story goes, got, uh, pinched for acquiring, um, some, uh, some Gila monsters, twin spot rattlesnakes and Ridgenose rattlesnakes, which all occur in, uh, in Southeastern Arizona. And, um, and they were supposedly had legal, uh, paperwork because if they're, you know, if they're legally bred in Europe, for example, you could uh, legally import these species that would be prohibited in that state and are protected. But, you know, if it, if it comes from, you know, overseas, then it's, you know, legal, which, which is kind of like um, kind of an oxymoron when you think about it because it's prohibited. But, you know, it goes here and then comes back and then it's legal. It's kind of like, all, you know, all the Australian stuff and everything that just somehow right. managed to get here and now it's here and it's being bred and everybody seems to be like, okay, it's here now. And kind of nobody pays attention to it anymore. 
Um, but uh, so he, this person got the Ridge Nose Rattlesnakes, the Twin Spot Rattlesnakes, and the Gila Monsters. Advertised them on King Snake and uh, dot com, and uh, one of the biologists, as the story would have it, now. Um, and, and, you, and you can't you know, necessarily quote me on this because I'm kind of paraphrasing, but um, the biologist uh, who is studying these animals, the twin spot rattlesnakes in this area, well, the, the guy that posted up, um, or the guy who posted up uh, from the people that he got it from, this snake had a painted tail, had some turquoise like nail polish on the rattle. And I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, like when they do rattlesnake studies, if they're not uh, putting radio telemetry gear or um, uh, you know the pit tags in there, they'll often paint the rattles, you know, to, to uh, identify huh. specimens. Well, anyway, so the, the the guy who clearly collected these things from the wild and sold them with with, with paperwork that was not. Uh, was not real, you know, it was forged paperwork, D- didn't bother to just at least take some nail polish remover and rub it off the snake's tail. He said uh, that uh, something along the lines of that that paint was to um, differentiate the males from the females, you know, which I-, I guess you would buy if you weren't paying attention to it. And uh, anyway, the biologist mm-hmm. from the Chiricahua's, uh, Chiricahua um, uh, mountain area, you know, in, in uh, southeastern Arizona, um, was I guess just so happened to stroll across the the forums and saw that animal for sale, and it was like, hey, that's my animal. So of course, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is involved. Their local Fish and Wildlife, um, because I had bought animals from him in uh, the past. My information was um, on their computers, you know, or on his computer and stuff. So they had uh, my information, and uh, of course, they go down the line. You know, they just they they go through that because when when they when they busted me. Um, they were, um, you know, they confiscated the computer, all of everything. So they got anybody who I ever wrote an email to, and I'm sure that they went after everybody. And that's just kind of what they do, um, you know, basically, um, you know, so that was, that was, um, that was a, a horrible thing. Cause obviously after he got busted, then they, I knew about that bust, but I didn't, nothing happened to us about, to about a year or so later because they did a, a year-long investigation before they made, made their move on us or on, on me. And, um, you know, so this was long past. And then I come to find out later that the person that I sold or that, that sold me that snake ended up being a, a special, in, um, a secret informant or a special informant on, on me because, you know, they did a plea agreement. So, uh, you know, he would get a lesser sentence and he kind of, you know, that that's how I got, found out and we obviously we won't name names or anything but um fish and wildlife um you know, uh, uh raided um our house my house um in nevada in 2006 i think it was and this is great because i was just i was saving up i was trying to get into the zoo field like that's what i wanted to do I, having all these snakes you know it wasn't something that uh you know, I was just planning to keep these snakes illegally for the rest of my life. You know, I grew up in a place where I love these things. And, you know, through through bogus um, laws, you know, you can't have them. And in, in two states over, you you know, all you need is a permit from Walmart to keep the same snakes that I, you know, got in a lot of trouble for having in Nevada. And, um, you know, so that was... You know, I thought that was the beginning of the end. You know, I was I was living with my I don't know if I mentioned this. I was obviously living with my parents the whole time, and I wasn't 
Um, I wasn't home when the raid took place. I got the phone call from my stepdad saying that they were being followed by undercover officers um, and they were looking for me. So don't come home. We need to get you a lawyer. U.S. Fish and Wildlife and local Nevada, you know, state wildlife officials are confiscating everything. You know, you can imagine. I, I haven't even turned 21 yet because, you know, kids live with, you know, with their parents forever now. So, you know, I'm glad I got out there 21. But, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, um, you know, I got that phone call, and, I, of course, I'm devastated and scared to death. You know, when, when you, when as basically a kid, because even, you know, when you're 20, you're still a kid, you know, 31 now, and I still right. feel like a kid. But, <laughs> you know, uh, when you get that message and you hear U.S. Fish and Wildlife, man, that's a big deal. Like, you think, man, I'm going to prison forever you know, for keeping snakes. And, um, yeah, so that was very scary. And I got home and, and all my stuff, you know, they, they, comp- they confiscated everything, took all the cages, all my books, everything that had to mm-hmm. deal with what I was doing. And um, it was awful. And then what was even better, a few days later, they couldn't carry some of the cages. The ones that they couldn't carry, they, they left. And they left the door wide open, and I noticed a dry water bowl with a Mojave rattlesnake curled up in the bowl. Because there were two in the cage, hmm. and it said it was labeled on the cage, two two animals in enclosure, and they missed one. They got the one, and they left the door wide open, and thankfully the other one just, you know, sat in there because I went to, it could have easily crawled out and bit my mom or somebody, you know, because they clearly couldn't read. Um, and uh, so I called them, and I said, you missed one, and they, they actually, <laughs> when they when they sent a, the, an officer uh to, to come and get it, they brought all my capture equipment that they took, and uh, they made me do it. They made me put the they, they wouldn't touch the snake. You know, the people that are you know enforcing these laws, you know, don't know anything about them and won't touch them, and made me do it. And I, man, I could have just got nailed by the thing, and then really had a case on them. But um, so after that point, I thought it was over um, for me, and I'm definitely not getting in a zoo now um, after this. And um, you know, so. Uh, I didn't have anything for a, a while, and then they came back with, um, they came back to me, and they uh, had, uh, you know, uh, probably about, um, uh, it was it was a while later uh, with a, with a arrest uh, a warrant for my arrest because they have to arrest you to charge you with a crime, right? Um, so that was great. Also, wasn't expecting that. Um, opened the door wearing a board shorts, no shirt, and after after a long night at the bar and was not ready for that. And they say, Hey, we have a warrant for your arrest. And I said, okay, well, I guess just follow me back in here and I'll get a shirt on. We'll go. And, um, so I did. And of course I was pretty upbeat the whole time, you know, on the way to, to, to jail because, uh, you know, it was early. So I asked if they could stop and get a Starbucks before we went in and they laughed and they didn't get me Starbucks. Um, uh, so after that, uh, you know, we uh, I got I was put on uh, probation, which was uh, five years. Um, it was going to be three felony counts of the Lacey Act, which um, you know kind of governs the interstate and the sale, transport, possession of uh, you know exotic wildlife plants, so on and so forth. Um, there, you know, there's a and then the Lacey Act was actually. Um, Man, I, I, I forget, uh, I think Jim, Jim Harrison was saying something that it was initially enacted because of somebody getting kidnapped and, uh, and somebody, you know, traveling over state lines and stuff. And, you know, then they just added a, a bunch of um, 
I mean, it could, that person may, may very well have been named Lacey, you know? Um, and, right. uh, okay. and that, 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 and a lot of, a lot of other stuff got, um, you know, added to that. But, um, af- after that, uh, it was five, it was five years probation. Um, and then five years of not being able to possess a venomous reptile, um, in my personal collection, unless I was uh, working at an institution or a zoological facility or employed working with venomous reptiles. They, they couldn't be my own. Um, and uh, so that was a real big bummer. You know, they really had to hit it where it hurts because, that, I mean, really that's the only thing. It wasn't like it was a drug thing and you need to stay off drugs or alcohol or something. It was like my drug was reptiles, and it's like you can't have those for five years. It's like, oh, man, uh, the venomous kind. So, you know, going, to, going into Condros. I was, I was trying to figure, you know, I'm like, well, you know, how how you are in reptiles, like you can really easily shift what you're interested in. So I'm looking at stuff and, um, there was a, um, a, uh, a flea market indoor snake shop. It was called the snake shop and it was ran by uh, Randy Klein and, uh, he's actually got a storefront out in Las Vegas now. Anyway, I was, uh, standing there with, uh, with, you know, looking at a condro, um, with, uh, a reptile gardens t-shirt on and, and you guys all know terry phillip from reptile gardens right um mm-hmm. you know, yeah eric and eric and Oni, he was on your your guys' show and and one of the one of the best shows um you know i i've ever listened to you know i i can't tell you how many times i've listened to that that radio show with terry and uh you know and he's a friend of mine and we talk on the phone often and I love listening to that radio show. Anyway, when I was at IHS in 2006, the shirt that I was wearing at that snake shop that day, uh, Terry wore, and we did this auction and we literally brought Terry up to do the auction. And we're like, we're raffling off this reptile gardens t-shirt. And he's like, what the hell? And, uh, and we basically pulled the shirt off of Terry and, and we, um, you know, we, we bit it up and then, you know, Terry just threw the shirt at me and we, uh, well, you know, I, I had that shirt on, and when I uh, was looking at that condro at that snake shop, I had it on, and um, who, who's now my best friend, Forrest Fanning, um, was also in the in the snake shop, and you guys may have, uh, may know Forrest or talked to him before, um, but uh, he uh, he called out the shirt, and he said, hey, have you been to Reptile Gardens? And, um, and I said, no, but I know Terry Phillip. And he's a friend of mine. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, me too. I grew up in, in Black Hill, South Dakota, in O'Terry. And he's got, you know, uh, he's like, he's got a, a lot of green tree pythons too. He's got a really nice collection of them. And I immediately thought, you know, after this whole venomous stuff, you know, I really looked up to Terry and even, even uh, you know, as, as a friend, um, still look up to and admire the guy. And I thought, you know, because you know, he's big into venomous, has one of the best venomous collections on earth. And, uh, you know, when Forrest said, that Terry keeps green trees. I thought, well, man, if, if Terry keeps green trees, they must be cool. And um, <laughs> and they have that very they have that very appealing look to them, like a venomous snake. You know, it's like I always reference the difference right. between fre- freshwater and saltwater fish. You know, if, if, you, if there are some freshwater fish that are beautiful, but there's you don't get the same feeling as you would looking at a saltwater tank, you know, with all the beautiful coral and the colors and uh, sharks and, and all of that stuff. It's like, it's a lot more alluring. And um, so the condros have that look to them. Well, after that, Forrest and I became uh, really, really close. And, um, you know, we decided let's uh, start keeping some condros. And our first condros, I got in a root type female from Kevin Switzer. I don't know if you've seen his name around at all, but 
Um, you know, he was bringing in nice farm yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's you know. So that was my first condor was out of Rue, and uh, and and Forrest got that. Uh, you know, he got a couple of Biox from um, Michael Powell, who's another name that you might be familiar with, but um, I don't know if he's around so much anymore. But after that, then it was just uh, it was downhill from there. You know, I couldn't you know I couldn't have the venomous, but man, I could go hog wild with condor. So we we built a, a phenomenal condor collection um, over the years and. Um, you know, and then that led us to, uh, you know, we were living in Las Vegas together and we, we decided that, uh, Las Vegas was not the place to, um, advance our reptile careers. Um, so we went to a place that, that was known for it. So we both moved to Florida, you know, um, I, I drove across the country in a, in a, in a van that we got for seven, a stick shift van that we got for $700 on Craigslist because it was a big gutted van that had nothing in it that we hmm. could put all of our vision racks in. We just hatched out our first chondro clutch, a, a clutch of Lara, uh, Lara's or Lara's, however you, you want to say it. And um, it drove, drove across the country in this thing that we ended up calling the year eight van. I drove across with my buddy Rigo who moved down there with us for us. And uh, his uh, fiance Desiree, they uh, they drove down there before us, and um, you know, we drove down there second. But we had to take all the animals, and we didn't have a big enough vehicle, so we bought that van. And it was so we named it the Urate van because it was primered white. It was like textured like a Urate, and it was discoloring <laughs> in the sun, so it kind of had a little yellow tinge to it. And it, the the thing topped out at about 45, 55 miles an hour if you were going downhill. And it literally took us a week to get from uh, southern Nevada to uh, Florida. Uh, it was ridiculous. We broke down multiple times, um, had to trade away our DVD collection for an alternator that we fixed ourselves on the side of the road because we couldn't afford a mechanic. We moved down there with you know, about several hundred dollars in our, in our pocket and, um, you know, got to Florida and um, started, started meeting people and um, – I got my foot in the door with Carl Barden at MedTox and Venom Laboratories and the Reptile Discovery Center. Um, also one of the most phenomenal uh, herpetologists on earth and one of the most phenomenal people on earth. And he was, uh, he allowed me to come into a facility um, and, and, and work with him and eventually work for him. Um, he's taught me a ton of life lessons. I got to live with him for a while and which led to, um, the assistant director, Denise Brew, um, who is no longer with Medtox and Venom Laboratories, but I uh, was there at the time. Uh, like I said, she's assistant director. She was going out to dinner with the curator of the St. Augustine Alligator Farm at the time, Kevin Turagosa, and um, we all, they, they invited me out, say, hey, did you want to go out with us? And I said, of course. Um, you know, as I was you know, saying before, in Nevada, all I wanted to do was get break into the zoo field and after the whole um you know the ven you know exotic venomous thing there i didn't think that i was gonna um ever see the zoo field so um of course we went out to dinner i started chatting with, with kevin turgosa um he knew me from you know vis previous visits at the daytona reptile expo and we were talking for a bit and he goes well hey I, we've got a reptile keeper position open at the farm and um you know we have you know, about a hundred applicants or so. And, 
by far you are the most qualified. Um, why don't you put in your resume? And of course I'm going up with people that have, you know, I don't know how I was the most qualified, at least on paper, because my resume wasn't built up yet. My only, my only experience was illegal experience, uh, you know, keeping these animals in, you know, in Nevada and, uh, but except for working with Carl and stuff, but that's how much weight, uh, Carl's opinion and, um, and everything carries is, uh, he wrote me a recommendation letter, which moved my resume to the top of the pile. So I'm dealing with people that have former zoo experience, degrees. I don't have a formal uh, academic background. I don't have a degree. Um, but because I went in there and I worked hard and I, you know, proved that I wanted this more than anything, you know, they gave me, they gave me a shot. Um, I got, uh, uh, you know, got an interview and got the job at the alligator farm. So started out as the seen uh as the uh as a keeper one an entry-level keeper um in 2010 and uh worked my way up the ladder to senior reptile keeper by 2012 um was there until 2015 where i got um the best crocodilian experience you will ever get in your lifetime uh you know the, the, the farm has been there for over 120 years and that's 120 years of uh, trial and error techniques. And now these techniques are very good working with crocodilians. And I got trained by some of the best people on earth, Kevin Turgosa and Jim Darlington, John Brugan. Uh, these, these guys are, are phenomenal. John Brugan's the director there. Um, Jim Darlington was the assistant curator um, and Kevin was the curator. Um, Kevin took a position at the Bronx Zoo as the reptile collections manager and Jim Darlington assumed the curator role. Um, at, th at this time, um, I got offered in 2015, um, or late 2014, I got offered the uh, curator reptiles position at the Phoenix Herpetological Society and, um, in, in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, they had 21 of the 24 recognized species of crocodilian, so almost a complete collection, um, and over 100 different species of venomous. So, uh, and and uh, everything just sounded really good. We went there. Um, they flew my wife and I out, and um, we got to see the place. And we decided to to, to move to Arizona for me to accept the, the curator reptiles position and. We were there for a year. Um, we, uh, we didn't see uh, eye to eye with the facility. I didn't. We were on, we were on two different pages after being there for a while. Um, so we, you know, we'll just leave it at that. I resigned in, two, in uh, February 2016, um, and we moved back to Florida um, and uh, onto our property, uh, our five-acre property, where we are basically um, managing our uh, reptile uh, business. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's a lot more and Pia, Pia will fill in the blanks, uh, when she talks, but, you know, I, I kind of, I wanted to throw in the, the whole Las Vegas, uh, the event and the snake thing, because I think it's important for people to know that about me up front, because, you know, if you, uh, after this show, after you Google this, you're going to, you know, you're going to see a Cody Bartolini, you're going to see a few different things pop up. You're going to see federal indictment. Federal Lacey Act, Las Vegas, Nevada. Twenty-year-old man gets arrested for, you know, uh, uh, offering to sell venomous snakes or whatever it says. And then um, you're going to see senior reptile keeper, St. Augustine Alligator Farm, Q 
curator of reptiles, Phoenix Herpetological Society. There's gonna be a lot of things, and so it, it may, you know, it's like just just so there's no confusion. Um, you know, that was that it was all me. <laughs> and um, another okay. important thing to really emphasize, another real important thing to emphasize though about the laws is uh, how important U.S. art really, really is. And I mean, I know everybody shows their support and and everything, but it, they really are um, incredible and and need to be around because. Uh, you know, I really wish I had them in Nevada when I was going through that because I'm the same person that I was back then, you know, I, uh, that, that had the, the love and the interest for these animals um, has never, has never um, gone away this whole time. There's been plenty of things to, to derail me and discourage me from continuing to do this, um, but I just want it too bad. And, um We'll, you know, we'll keep doing it, but, you know, I, I, I'm the same person that people regarded as a quote-unquote uh, professional herpetologist when I'm giving tours or lectures or talks because, you know, I've got the name tag on. I'm the senior reptile keeper. I'm the curator of reptiles. And then people think, uh, you know, I had multiple people ask me, like, well, what about those people that keep you know, venomous snakes in their house? You're like, I was one of those people and still am one of those people that keep venomous snakes in our house. And, uh, th but that doesn't make me a weirdo or a creep or a bad person um, or somebody that's uh, a criminal, you know, because we've, a, a law got broken doesn't mean you're a criminal. I've gone on to Africa to do um, African slender snouted uh, work for Project uh, uh, Stops, uh you know, for the conservation of African slender snouted crocodiles and stuff that I would have never been able to do if it wasn't for me being able to embrace my interest for these animals privately. Um, to lead me into a professional career. And I think the more laws that get passed where they deem you a criminal, you know, you, you could be a criminal for, for, you know, having a, you know, when they, I, I don't know if the salamanders are still on the, on the Lacey Act, but you could be a criminal for transporting a salamander across state lines, um, you know, right. at, at one point, or maybe it's still in effect and stuff. But it's like, uh, you know, just because you're not allowed to have them, doesn't mean you're, you know, the qualified people. There's not a lot of qualified people that can uh, that can keep them, and a lot of great people that have to stay underground because um, they can't they can't publicly talk about that stuff. And you know that makes it even more dangerous uh, to keep these kind of animals. If people are afraid, you know, people get bit by venomous reptiles um, that live in places that they can't um, uh, have them. So a lot of the times they try to leather out a bite because they're too afraid of the consequences of going in saying, "Hey, I had an exotic venomous bite." Um, you know, so that could also be very dangerous opposed to just having um, make sense laws and people that should have them be able to have them and not have them in fear. Like in Florida, we have, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, a strict process to get permits to keep, um, you know, ex exotic venomous and venomous and crocodilians and stuff, but it's not impossible. And it makes it, it's a, it's a process everybody has to follow zoos. Private people doesn't matter. Um, if you can, um, if you can follow the requirements, you can have them, and that's how it should be. And that's how you know. That's why I think U.S. Arc is super, super important. But I will digress. Right. I'll come up for air. I will turn this over to Pia and Susan. And uh, all right. <clears throat> Don't worry. Oh, wait a minute. That was good. No, so, keep going. Pretty short, sweet. We, we, we uh, got a two-hour okay. show. Keep going. So yeah. As, well, I think you can let Cody keep going. He will go for a solid two hours without stopping. Um, yep. <laughs> um, I guess my kind of quick history, um, I'm uh, originally from Sweden but lived in the United States most of my life. 
Um, always been an animal person. Um, I wouldn't say that I was a reptile person, but I was just like an, any kind of animal person um, and knew I wanted to do something with animals my whole life. And um, I went to uh, vet tech school after, um, kind of after high school and college and everything and uh, became a vet tech uh, in Colorado in 2008 um, where I worked uh, primarily with dogs and cats doing emergency and critical care. Um, then right after that, I got an internship at a place called White Oak, which is a conservation center here in Florida that does primarily um, breeding of uh, endangered species, so like uh, all different kinds of rhino species. They have you know, the white rhinos, they have black rhinos, Indian rhinos, um, Sumatran rhinos when I was there, uh, you know, cheetahs, giraffes, uh, zebras, okapi, I mean, you name it, they had some pretty awesome stuff there. So I got a, a pretty, pretty good um, experience there as a vet tech doing um, zoo and exotic stuff there. And um, the interesting thing about White Oak is it's part of the University of Florida's uh, Zoological Medicine Residency Program, where um, the, the residents for the um, zoological program, they spend their first two years at the University of Florida, they spend their third year at uh, White Oak, and then they spend their fourth year at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, so I kind of, I kind of jokingly say that I did the the UF residency backwards, where I worked at uh, the White Oak Conservation Center first for about six months uh, doing my internship, and then I got a job at uh, the University of Florida um, as a vet tech there, working with the um, amazing veterinarians like uh, Elliot Jacobson. Uh, Jim Wellahan, Daryl Hurd, um, and also amazing, you know, vet students and residents that went through that program as well. Um, and then kind of along Cody's lines, um, we, uh, through the University of Florida, we, I was the vet tech liaison for the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, so I went there every two weeks doing all their veterinary care um, with the vets and the residents there. So that's kind of how Cody and I met. And, if you guys want to hear another long story, um, he can definitely tell you that one. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah we'll, well no, I promise we'll keep it short. Um, yeah, we we met. Um, you know, I was the reptile. Uh, I was. We can tell the story later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a lot of work, more stuff. Yeah, but I mean, we do have two hours, so I mean, if we we got to kill some of, some of the time, and then we'll you know we'll go right into yeah, it. We'll, we'll talk about that one later. <laughs> but anyways, um, so Cody and I met at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, which um, obviously has a very special place for both of us. Um, but then when we moved uh, to Arizona, I got to work at another amazing uh, veterinary clinic called the Arizona Exotic Animal Hospital, um, where they're primarily only exotics, and so they don't do dogs or cats or anything like that. They just do um, exotic animals. And kind of along that same line, when I was, uh, the last year I was at the University of Florida, I um, applied for a veterinary technician specialty application, which is basically like a boarded exam for veterinarians, but it's for technicians. So like... Uh, doctors, veterinarians, um, nurses can all specialize in a certain area. Um, it's the same for veterinary technicians as well. So um, I applied for that, which is a one-year application process um, in exotic companion animals, and I was accepted, uh, took the test, passed the boards, and that was back in 2015. Um, and then we moved back here to Florida, and now I'm working at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom, as a veterinary technician there. So I'm there three days a week, and then the rest of the time, um, obviously helping Cody with uh, the rest of the collection that we have here, about close to 400 animals, I think. It's too many. <laughs> wow. It's too and, many. Uh, <laughs> the majority, I, uh, I take care of what we call the Nido Shed, so um, that way we are separating um, uh. 
taking care of certain animals and uh, quarantine and isolation and kind of all that, all that good stuff. So that's my short and sweet little in a nutshell. Man, that was a short and sweet one. I admire that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's, that's good. Um, but uh, yeah, so okay. um, you know, on to Susan. Yeah, I think my show is going to be even shorter and sweeter then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> short. Um, <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to thank you again for inviting me um, to speak on Python Radio, and I really do hope that I'm able to add kind of a unique perspective to our discussion on Ida virus and kind of relate it to um, how it affects uh, the Python community. And I'm, you know, more than willing to answer any questions if I can. You know, I'm definitely also willing to say I don't know if I don't know. Um, so similar to Pia, I had an uh, interest in animals at a very young age. And, you know, I was one of those uh, young girls who said, I always want to go to vet school. And, you know, I was starting to volunteer when I was in high school, and I worked at a wildlife refuge. And, you know, I, I went to um, undergraduate at University of Massachusetts, and I thought, yes, I totally want to be a vet. And I went through the animal uh, pre-vet uh, program there. And probably around my third year, I said, you know what, I don't want to be a vet. Because uh, what they taught me was you can do large animals and you can do small animals. And then I worked in um, a laboratory setting as well. And so I thought, well, you know, I don't really want to do any of these things. You know, I can't see myself in an office all day uh, working with dogs and cats. Um, and so I kind of, you know, took a different route for a little while. And uh, after I finished my undergraduate work at uh, UMass, I thought, well, I'm going to be a dive master. So, you know, I moved down to Florida and I got my dive master certification and uh, I ended up living in the Keys for a while. And uh, I thought, okay, this is, this is fun, but you know, hospitality is a, it's a tough business and you have to have a very specific personality <laughs> uh, to, to play right. in that game. And, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have that personality, you know, I do all right for short periods, but uh, it's, it's a tough job for sure, you know, and I definitely bow my head to every, anybody who can do it for a long period of time. Um, I also was a bartender, you know, because it's a universal position. You can, you know, go anywhere in the world and you can always have a job. People like to drink, me included. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> um, I ended Damn up it. working at a shrimp farm um, down in the Florida Keys and Uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm finally using my biology degree. You know, I kind of am working with animals. But uh, what I was doing there was culturing algae uh, for juvenile shrimp. So that was an interesting job. And I got to, you know, uh, do health assessments on shrimp and uh, learn how to breed them um, and take care of them and, you know, grow them up from what they call little nauplii. And so I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Um, And uh, the gentleman who started the company was the CEO Uh, He happened to be retired faculty from a university out in California, and he was very big on people going and getting um, continuing education, making sure that, you know, people were, you know, growing and that, you know, they were happy in their job and that they were continuing to learn. So he sent me out to a class in Arizona of all places, and it was a shrimp pathology class. And I thought to myself, you know, when I got there, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's kind of weird that it's in Arizona. You know, it's a pretty dry place, and there's shrimp farming there. But, right. you know, hey, whatever. I mean, it's great. Um, but, you know, the second I sat down and I looked in the microscope and I started learning about diseases, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a pathologist. I want to study disease. Um, and said, so, well, how can I do that? So my first step was to go back to school. And I spent quite a long time in academia, you know, 
it was a long road and, and there was many times where I thought, wow, you know, what the heck am I doing? You know, I could have stayed on that dive boat and, you know, saw, saw those beautiful sunny days with clear water and all the tropical fish I wanted to see every day. But uh, I'm glad I did it. But I ended up uh, going to Auburn University and getting a master's in fisheries and aquaculture. And while I was there, I was working with oysters and I was looking at disease in oysters. So that was really interesting. And that took me about three years, um, supposed to be two, but I ended up on the coast when Katrina came through. So that delayed things just a little bit. Um, after that, I worked for Fish and Wildlife for a year uh, in Florida, and um, I applied to vet school at University of Florida, and I'm very uh, thankful that I was accepted there because their program uh, is second to none when it comes to aquatics and exotic animal medicine. As you know, Pia mentioned um, some very uh, amazing and intelligent um, people that work there, like Jim Wellahan uh, and Daryl Hurd. Um, and I had the exposure, and I was able to learn from them. So while I was at the University of Florida, I really targeted learning exotic animal medicine and aquatic animal medicine. And similar to a doctor, like a human doctor, uh, to specialize, you have to do a residency. And so after the four years of veterinary school, I applied to programs, and I was superiorly uh, blessed uh, to say that I went to the University of Georgia um, and while at University of Georgia, I, I got to work with uh, Dr. Stephen Divers, who I'm sure many people know from his, um, his brand-new textbook that just came out, uh, the Reptile Surgery and Medicine book. Um, but while mm -hmm. there, I also uh, worked with some amazing people in the aquatics field. So I was in the pathology department, which is a department that specializes in the study of disease. Um, and I was exposed to um, cases – from oysters to elephants. I mean, we saw it all. In the exotics department, um, we had, sometimes we had up to 40 cases come in, and these were coming in from zoos uh, and aquariums all over the country. Um, so I was very lucky to, to learn about all animals and not just dogs and cats, which really fed into my love for exotics. Um, and so I stayed at University of Georgia for four years. I also got a PhD there as well. So glutton for punishment, and I'm definitely done with academia, <clears throat> pretty sure. <laughs> got that out of my system. Um, in 2015, I sat for my board certification in pathology. Uh, similar to what Pia was saying, uh, we can specialize, and um, there's a board that comes together and makes this horrendous exam that you have to take and it's given once a year and everybody travels to Ames, Iowa of all places and suffers together and takes this exam and I was, you know, happy that I passed it on the first time because, wow, that was not pleasant. Um, it takes about mm. four or five months of straight studying on top of the three years of the residency. So it's a, it's a pretty tedious process. Um, I finished my PhD in 2016 and I opened up uh, Fish Head Labs, which is very similar to what I was doing at University of Georgia. I'm basically seeing animals from oysters to elephants. Um, and actually, uh, I've been seeing uh, quite a few snakes, um, pythons and boas, um, and some venomous as well. And so what I do, uh, it's kind of like a CSI for animals. You know, I'm trying to figure out why they died or 
you know, how I can help them while they're alive. So uh, similar to a uh, human pathologist where, say, if you went into a dermatologist and you had a mask taken off your skin, um, they would take that mask, they would put it into a, a fixative solution, and then they would send it to a lab, and then a pathologist would read it. They would charge you a bundle, uh, and then they would tell you, oh, it's inflammation or maybe it's a tumor. So uh, that's what I do, but for animals. Um, and I think that okay. sums up me. <laughs> Oh, that awesome. wasn't too long. That was great. Yeah. Very good. Well put. So, so I guess we're going to just jump into the uh, the uh, NIDO virus now. So, um, Cody uh, or Pia, can you tell us what your personal experience was with the NIDO virus um, in the Condros? Um. It wasn't a good one. Well, I mean, <laughs> well yeah, obviously. End of the show. It's like, yeah, it's, it's All right, we're done. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. That was great. I was going to say, first off, there's a couple of things that we kind of wanted to, to say initially was, for one, we are neither one of us, um, and I'm kind of including Susan in this, are, are veterinary virologists that, you know, specialize in this kind of stuff. So we kind of we got hit with this. Um, kind of a, a, I guess, yeah, we were pretty much hit hit on the side of our face with this, and we kind of had to work with, yeah. with what we had. Um, and uh, the other big thing is that, you know, quarantine, I cannot emphasize that enough, that quarantine, 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 and even if you do quarantine, it may not always be enough, so... Um, well, I think I think too. Uh, you know, everybody. And I won't I won't go back to the quarantine because I'll I'll probably get on a really good tangent yeah, about that. That yeah, I get real I'll get real fired up. Um, but uh, no, our, our personal experience. Um, we uh, you, you know we've been dealing with this uh, aggressively for the past year. Um, I know uh, not uh, I don't know a few months ago, Eric, you. Uh, you re- reached out to me to uh, to come on the on Morelia Pythons Radio, um, you know, and, and we 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 play been playing a, a phenomenal game of phone tag this whole time. You know, you're busy, I'm busy, you're busy, I'm busy. You know, and uh, I, I mean, that, uh-huh. one time when you sent me that email, I called and I got I got your work, and and I'm like, some some lady answered, and I said, is Eric there? You know, and they're like, oh, he's not in right now, and I'm like. But then I called a couple times. I'm like, man, this is awkward. So I'm like, do you have a cell phone or something that I could call you on? And uh, and then um, and then when uh, you wanted, and that was we've been talking since 2000. Hey. I think we met at Tinley Park. Then we we all met in yeah, I think 2014. I'm good. Yeah. How are you? Can you hear us? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I can hear. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. Are we good? Are we all good? Who fell off? Ah, well, he's gone. So, somebody drop off. Right. Yeah. Eric's gone. Just keep going. <laughs> no, I'm back here. Okay. Oh. Can I talk to a wall? So we're we're probably we're pretty okay. Now Eric's back. Eric's back. Yeah. So when when Eric yeah 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 I can hear the whole time. (laughs) Okay. We're all good now. Nice. How was the flight? Was it smooth? (laughs) I think Buddy's having another conversation. (laughs) Is he? Is he? Okay. I, I. 
I hope all the uh, listeners can hear all of this. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, Eric, Eric, you and I were talking uh, it's at 2014 gotcha. at Tinley, I think. Uh, oh, and two, we were all hanging out, and um, you know, and then you guys were talking about getting us on the show from then. But it just the stars didn't align. Well, Eric right. recently, yeah, uh, uh, fairly recently, sophisticated. Um, Hold on, let me try to get Buddy so they you can. can get through all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Are, are going, we... Cody. <laughs> uh, all right, man. All right. So, anyway, just keep skipping ahead. When Eric when Eric tried to call us, and, um, man, it's really hard to talk over that back noise. Yeah. Can you guys hear that, too? Hold on one sec. Yeah, buddy. Hold on one sec. Buddy's on the phone with his wife and did not mute himself. So. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> how yeah, in, how embarrassing! Uh, <laughs> how <stuff>. embarrassing! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, okay. Yeah, keep yeah. going. I'm gonna try to get his attention. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's like it's like when you have that echo when you hear yourself, uh, and it just and you can't talk because you just keep hearing something in the background. Uh, I know. But anyway, yeah. So um, when uh, when Eric when you called us when you called me last time and we've been playing phone tags fairly recently this is when we were going through the heart of this and when you wanted to bring bring me on um, you know uh, and, yeah. and you didn't you didn't know about Pia you know or or, or whatnot or because it would you know would, would have been a bit, uh, would have been both of us and stuff and. Um, and we were de- I mean we were in the heart of this this is right when it really started. Or it was close to we were we were in it you know deep in it and um you know i i was like i wanted to tell you over the phone like i don't know if this is the best time for us to come on morelia python radio because we we had so many things going on with uh, animals um popping with respiratory infections and then suddenly dying within a day and it was it swept through the collection like a prairie fire and we weren't sure that we were going to have a collection in you know at the end of the week uh at the way that things were going and uh, you know so i wanted to think yeah i wanted to get you on the phone and say hey i think let's figure this out and then we'll like we would be happy to come out and talk about it but right now it's like how's your breeding season going it's like i'm not sure i'm gonna have the snake collection next week so not good <laughs> and yeah um we uh, <laughs> Yeah, so so then I, I started talking. Uh, you know, we were I was talking with with Buddy and stuff because we got some animal we uh, animals in a um, in the, in the in a collection sale that we got. We we um, acquired a uh, a collection um, of of beautiful designer green tree pythons, and amongst those were some animals um, that uh, Buddy uh, was was tied to um, and. Uh, or, or, or from from some of his animals, and um, we we were talking about one of those because uh, it was from the Sugar Ray uh, Stitch pairing, and on our website we posted up um, you know the, the information on on uh, one of the animals that was available from that, and Stitch we I put as a yellow uh, a red neonate Bioc because that's what I was initially told that she was not from not from Buddy, but. Um, uh, that was incorrect. She was actually a yellow ne- neonate uh, Bioc, and Buddy reached out to me about her, and uh, or, and then uh, we just started talking, and I was telling him issues within the collection and and what we, 
you know, what was going on. And, um, and as we were figuring everything out, um, you know, he was asking, would you mind um, coming on GTP Keeper and talking about it? And at the time, we wanted, to, we wanted to see how things played out because we were still really not sure to ha- answer uh, questions to the satisfaction of everybody. You know, a couple of our close friends knew what was going on, um, but, of course, we didn't want to post it on social media, Facebook, Morelli Veritas Forum, any of that stuff because it was going to create an uproar um, of people uh, asking way too many questions that didn't have answers. And so, like I said, we couldn't answer the satisfaction of everybody. Um, but uh, after after we um, learned more about it, we were more than happy to, to talk about our, our story. And, you know, so here we are. We acquired this collection and put them into quarantine. Um, and they, uh, you know, we had them in the collection for probably two or three weeks before the first animal just started looking crummy. And and you guys know what I'm talking about, especially in pythons and in particular chondros. When they're when they're feeling crummy, you can I mean, after a while you could walk by the enclosure and just the way that they're perching, you know, you know, if they're perching with their head up instead of down, if they kinda look they've got that look on their, their face that looks like they're they're trying to open their mouth a little bit to breathe or whatever and you and then you hear it that terrible, terrible sound, that horrible weave where you just know I'm in for months and months and months of work with this snake because it just doesn't how cure you know doesn't get better overnight when it's something that's not a virus right so you know and and I always every time any animals ever have gotten sick or anything I always think it's Armageddon in the collection I don't know if you guys do that I know there's a lot of reptile keepers out there that the second something gets sick they're freaking out thinking it's the worst case scenario and uh so that's of course how I am, and uh, we have a we have a saying in the veterinary community is if you hear hoof prints, you think horses, not zebras. Um, so usually mm-hmm. I usually have to talk Cody off of the ledge. It's always talking me off the ledge, yeah. Like it's it's you know right. it's probably just you know it's probably just a respiratory infection. It's probably just a, you know we you know just need to get a culture and sensitivity. We'll you know start some antibiotics, start some supportive care. It's it's not the end of the world, um, and so. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the usual. And, of course, in our collection, um, it's always zebras. It's never a horse. It never, ever seems like it's a horse. We always get to find the stuff that nobody else found because uh, we're looking for it, which is a blessing and a curse um, because of uh, Pia's, you know, veterinarian background or, 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 or um, you know, vet, vet technician background and then, you know, all of our close friends who are some of the best veter- reptile veterinarians on earth. Um, you know, you, you look for these things because, you know, they're suggesting, oh, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that. They're getting, you know, uh, Jim uh, Wellahan, um, you know, one of our uh, veterinarians and personal friends at University of Florida, he's one of the top virologists uh, in, in the world. Uh, this, uh, Jim is writing multiple papers a week on new viruses that he discovered. It's a passion of his. And when he gets, he'll get excited about it, the potential of a virus, you know, a new virus in one of our snakes because he likes the viruses as much as we like the snakes. So, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, he's like, oh, it could be this. And you're like, no, 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 no. I hope it's not that. Like, please don't let it be that. And um, which mm-hmm. is good for us coming, finding um, what the real underlining issue is because it, far too often in not green trees, not carpets, just everything across the board, the sec- reptile-related anyways, um, the second an animal gets ill, reptile folk um, have the 
uncanny ability to become veterinarians the second their animal gets sick. You know, everybody is like, oh, it's just a respiratory infection or, uh, you know, if you just give them some Batril or whatever, it'll, it'll fix them right up. You know, I always you know, constantly hear people, uh, reptile uh, people, given other reptile people inaccurate information because of a personal experience of an animal that they had that may have just recovered from something all on its own and it was nothing, none of the kooky stuff that they did that um, that uh, recovered that animal. And you'll see often um, too much in the in the reptile industry a lot of vet bashing going on where uh, people say, oh, well, you know, vet- veterinarians don't know anything about reptiles or chondros, so, you know, it's best to just reach out to people in the community uh, and stuff. And although that there are, there's a lot of sound information, um, you know, with a lot of experienced people, you, you always have to question everyone, and you have to double-check your sources and triple-check them. And, um, you know, I can't personally... Uh, stress the importance of having a veterinarian um, to look at these issues. And if you have a, you know, now in this day and age uh, with technology, and, and Pia could talk about uh, what she's associated with, with uh, uh, ARAV and everything, but they have, uh, which is the, uh, you want to cover that? Um, well, so ARAV is the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians, which is an organization that is kind of a collective of people who are interested in um, kind of reptile medicine and people who are specialized in reptile medicine. So if anybody out there is looking for a reptile veterinarian, there are ones in almost every single state. So you just have to go onto their website, which is um, arav.org, and there's a find a vet. And that, I would say, is probably the biggest kind of resource that um, people can have to find somebody who can uh, help them out if they have any um, veterinary questions and things like that. Um, yeah, and to add to that, we on, on our website, terrestrialandarboreal.com, um, we have a resources page, and on that resources page, um, if, you know, if you can't remember what what Pia just said, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys could provide a link, or we could we could post one too. But uh, on our resources page, there's a link uh, to find a vet. So. Um, I've got that, so all you have to do is click that link, and it'll bring you right to that page. You don't have to, you know, fig, you know click a whole bunch of things or remember uh, that website or anything to do that. And um, and you could find a vet in your area that is, you know, is more specialized in exotics and reptiles and amphibians. But even if you're in an area where you might just have to take it to a regular vet, um, even if they don't have experience in, let's say, a chondro, um, that's where you come in as the keeper providing that information because they, they're good at what they do and they might have resources for somebody who's more specialized in reptiles, but you bring them in, you give them the natural history of a green tree python, you give them um, captive care, husbandry, um, what's normal behavior versus abnormal behavior, what you're seeing, and you need to educate a, a vet if they're not familiar with reptiles to um, you know, better better serve you because you know, I'm, I'm sure that they would be able to get in contact with somebody that that would be able to provide more information or, or uh, uh, in a consult or uh, particular testing on a on a on a couple of things um, that maybe the the other vet couldn't couldn't do. But um, you know, I, I think that um, you know, with like if it if it wasn't for um, the vets that that we know and and uh, the testing that we had at, uh, available to us, we may have not have known this was nidovirus because the symptoms that we were seeing, we got the, we got the green tree python collection, 
Um, we uh, quarantined them, and uh, you know, like I said, within the you know the first few weeks, the first one started looking real crummy, and uh, followed by um, very severe respiratory um, uh, distress or signs that the animal was very raspy. There was a lot of um, you know buildup in the cholina, the upper roof of the mouth area, a lot of like caseous buildup around the gum lines and. And they, did, they just didn't look good. And then, you know, some of these animals died very quickly after that. Um, and well, within our first, so the first symptoms started about um, three weeks into the quarantine process. Um, and then we mm. had our first death uh, within one month. And then, I mean, symptoms were, you know, very similar, kind of just, just the kind of very vague respiratory symptoms, kind of the, as Cody said, open mouth breathing, kind of uh, respiratory noise. Um, kind of waxy, kind of dull look on their um, on their skin, and kind of I guess to kind of show the how quickly things progressed. We had so first signs started within three weeks. Uh, we had our first death within uh, one month, so a week after uh, clinical signs. Which I um, I've been working with exotics for a while, and I have never seen a respiratory infection in a snake go so quickly. Um, where it's you know. You see, clini- you see clinical signs, and you're like, okay, you know, bring him into the vet. We'll start doing, you know, lung washes, do culture and sensitivity, things like that, um, kind of start support care. But within us trying to kind of start getting things ready for, you know, antibiotics and, and things like that, um, it the animal died within a week. Um, wow. And we obviously did, did a necropsy on that animal, um, and... I, mean, I don't know if you guys have done necropsies before. You know, you don't necessarily get the um, the results right away. Um, you get kind of some gross results pretty quickly, but um, all the histopathology and things like that can take a couple of weeks. Um, but during yeah. that same time, um, kind of when the first animal died, we had a couple more animals kind of pop up with some some respiratory signs, and we had um, we had another animal die uh, two days later. Um, and then we had another animal die about a, a week later or so, and then we kind of started having this. Um, obviously, we, we sent all these animals in for necropsy, and kind of as we're kind of waiting for um, waiting for our results, we went through, and if anybody who had any kind of respiratory symptoms, uh, we did a culture insensitivity and basically started anybody who was showing clinical signs on uh, antibiotics um, through that culture insensitivity, which... We were doing um, septazidine and enrofloxacin per our veterinarian. And um, I don't know if you guys have had to do treatments on um, any snakes before, uh, IM injections. We were, mm-hmm. I want to say we were doing 15 animals um, with two antibiotics. One was every three days, one right. was every two days. So it was, it was an entire evening of getting all the medications ready, getting all the animals, um, you know, treated and making sure that we're, you know, doing proper quarantine and, you know, sanitation between each animal and, and all that kind of good stuff. But And it was, and it was very, it was very, I mean, it was tedious. It's heartbreaking. It's frustrating dealing with that because you always think, Oh, you like, you, you always fear as a, as a reptile keeper and a herpetoculturist, the, the worst, which is a virus that one day you might get it and you kind of, you, you play out in your head how you think it might go, but you never really know, especially when it happens and it was like a prairie fire running wild and you just didn't know when it was going to stop until it stopped. And, you know, just every day 
it was another snake and another snake. And you're, and, and before we knew that it was the virus, you know, I'm, I'm que- questioning everything I've ever known as a herpetoculturist, you know, I'm like, is it me? Is it what I'm doing? Is it my temperature's wrong? These can't all be getting respiratory. I mean, these were snakes that we've had since 2012. How did they get respiratory? And you don't also, there's a lot of denial going on at the same time. You're like, no, it can't be a virus. It can't be. Okay, this snake's dead. Like this snake was fine two days ago, and it's dead now. It's you know, and and so there's a lot of frustration, a lot of frustration, and a lot of fear because you just don't know when it's going to end and what other species it's going to affect. Um, and um, well, as the, initially it was just the um, the animals that were in quarantine. Um, so we had we had the animal. Um, die that first month, and then we had an animal die two days later, which both um, were submitted for necropsy. And then about 10 days later, we had another animal die. Um, and then about um, two days after that, we had another animal die. And that fourth animal was an animal that was not in the same, um, I guess, same room as the other uh, quarantine animals. The way that kind of our facilities, or I should say our house is set up, um, because the collection that we acquired was so large, we had it in our living room, and then we had the majority of the rest of our um, Morelia species in the dining room, and then we have our venomous species in a, another room as well. And it was one of those, um, it was a carpet python that also um, showed respiratory symptoms, and then within, you know, a week or so uh, died as well. And so kind of at this point in time, my wheels were really turning on, on kind of what was going on, and that's when... Uh, we were sending everything to the state lab, and I knew that we needed something a little bit more um, kind of specialized and a little bit more kind of expertise to figure out what was going on. And that's kind of when I reached out to Susan, and obviously we were talking with um, our vets at UF as well. Because um, initially, if we have an animal die, we'll, we usually just do a necropsy that kind of kind of rules out that, you know, it was something that wasn't, you know, infectious or something that wasn't contagious or anything like that. But um, it was definitely, with the way that things were going, we knew that it was um, something very serious. And when we when we got the results back from the initial two animals that were necropsy, that they thought it was a viral um, a virus that um, they they sent out. It was called a, a viral EM, which is electron microscopy, um, to try to figure out what kind of virus this was. Um, they were not able to figure it out. And so what I um, had them do is, and this is pretty common, um, you can save back tissues and be able to test it for other things. So, and Susan can probably tell you a little bit about the necropsy process, is they usually save back tissues um, to be able to do further testing. And I just asked the lab, I'm like, send anything you guys have to UF and we'll kind of um, go from there. And that's kind of when we, we brought Susan into the whole mix of things. But, uh, Susan, did you want to jump um, in there with uh, necropsy and kind of what you guys kind of were starting to, I don't know, figure out here? Sure, yeah. So I guess my first step was really to call the diagnostic lab because, um, you know, I think when I got pulled into it, or excuse me, I was requested to join the team. Um, <laughs> that's what happens to our friends. We're like, oh, we need your help. Yeah. yeah. So, to, you know, because, you know, this is, you know, why I went into the field is, you know, I really like the mystery and trying to figure out what's going on, not to mention, you know, I'm helping my friends, um, and I'm saving, hopefully saving some other animals' lives, you know, it really is, um, especially with collections this large, it's a herd health issue, so, you know, um, 
you need to make sure that, you know, if you are going to necropsy an animal, that you're sending it to a laboratory that understands the situation and it's going to treat it as a herd health issue because it may be, you know, okay, you have one animal that died, but you have multiple that are sick or potentially could be. So I, the turnaround time is really important in this case, especially if you need to quarantine or get these animals separated or, you know, change your um, your disinfection methods or, you know, have somebody come in to evaluate what's going on. So I can't stress that enough. It's really important <laughs> that you give a really thorough history and that, you know, they understand that this is a very, you know, um, well, you know, for the owners, of course, it's a horrible situation. They have animals dying, and you never want to see your animals die. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a terrible situation uh, for the animals as well because, you know, they're under your care, and they have no ability to, you know, move themselves away from it. So they, there's no, no more natural selection. They're, they're there. They're in it to win it. So <laughs> um, anyway, I digress. So uh, as far as the necropsy uh, <laughs> process goes, you know, um, Usually is, you know, we get a fresh animal, you know, the fresher, the better, you know, if you, if you have an animal that dies, um, you want to get it to the pathologist on ice, never freeze your animal, get it to them super fresh, um, which usually is an overnight in a styrofoam box with ice packets. And so once a pathologist uh, gets the animal, you know, we hope to get a really thorough history, which I was very lucky to have, uh, especially because, you know, I'm friends with Pia, so I could sit there and discuss it with her. And Cody was wonderful about giving details about, you know, what was happening in their collection. So that gave me a really good basis. Um, but when I look at these animals, it's, very methodical. You know, I always look at the same things in the same order, and that way I don't miss anything. Because, say, you know, we suspect that there's a virus, but, you know, if you're saying, oh, virus, 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 or bacteria, 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 you know, you can overlook things. So we don't want to do that. So, you know, the first animal that I received, I knew that there was something going on in the collection, and then a lot of these animals were showing, um, you know, respiratory signs, but some of them had some GI lesions as well. And, you know, I wanted to make sure I targeted those tissues, but also to look at everything. Um, and so, you know, when I look at these animals, they do a, a thorough physical exam, almost like the animal was alive, um, except for, of course, taking, you know, blood pressure and uh, <laughs> heart rate. You know, can't do that. Um, and, you know, we can't right. take blood after the fact, but, you, you know, you can't, you know, get some of the information that you would if they were alive. But you want to make sure that uh, we get a full, thorough uh, exam on them. Um, and then I take lots of pictures uh, because, you know, it, it's amazing how much a camera will see and the naked eye will miss. So sometimes you won't see it from your naked eye, and then you'll look at the picture later and you'll go, wow, that was definitely abnormal. So I take tons of pictures um, even before I enter the body. Um, and then – I methodically go through, look at eyes, uh, depends on the species, ears, <laughs> mouth, um, skin or scales, um, any kind of specialized appendage they may have, um, and then, you know, the cloaca or anus, or, you know, depending on the species. Um, and, you know, if you can sex them, I sex them as well. Um, and then I enter the body. And as I'm doing this, I'm collecting samples, and I do um, multiple sets of samples because uh, each one of them is going to be held for a different purpose. 
The first set of samples that I take are fresh samples, and those samples will be frozen, um, and they'll be held so that we can do additional testing. And this includes um, bacteriology, which is taking the tissue and putting it on special media and growing bacteria, and that's what we do our sensitivity for antibiotics on. Um, so we can identify the bacteria, and then we can see, wow, okay, this, this bacteria is going to um, be uh, sensitive to this antibiotic. We should use this. Whereas some uh, bacteria, they're, they in the intermediate range, and that's kind of worrisome. When bacteria are in the intermediate range, that means that there's some of them that are resistant. And if you start giving antibiotics to a bacteria that's in, in, the, in the intermediate range of sensitivity, you might be selecting for these superbugs. Um, I think everybody is familiar these days with MRSA. Uh, that's kind of how MRSA came about. People were giving antibiotics so frequently to people that these super bacteria, they, they, they were the only ones left. You know, they could, they could resist all of these antibiotics and kind of take over. Um, so all the tissues that I, I, that I take for fresh, you know, they can be used for bacteriology, but they can also be used um, – to get sequence data out of, to look for RNA viruses or DNA viruses. Um, we can also do fungal culture from these. So there's a lot of things. Uh, toxicology, you know, you think, my dog was poisoned by the neighbor. I can't tell you how many times I heard that one when I was in residency. Uh, you know, they have tissues that you can send to a toxicology lab and see, well, maybe there's too much copper. Maybe uh, there's not enough um, vitamins being given to the animal. So there's a, a lot of reasons to save tissues. But for these snakes, um, I pretty much saved replicates of everything, but specifically trachea and esophagus. Um, I took a piece of coena, um, multiple t p uh, pieces of lung because we kind of had an idea – um, from the other pathologists, when I spoke to them, they said, you know, we think, we think we're seeing these lung lesions, these proliferative lung lesions, meaning the, the lung is thicker than it should be and that the animals don't have enough airspace, and so they're having a hard time breathing. And that's, you know, what you're seeing somewhat with the clinical signs, but they also had these lesions in the esophagus um, where it was um, the mucosa was completely ulcerated and they had tons of necrotic tissue that was filling uh, the lumen and it was getting down into the lungs too, into the air sacs. So the majority of these animals had similar, but some of them had, you know, lung lesions. Some of them, or all of them had lung lesions, but some of them were more um, esophageal um, in nature and some of them more tracheal in nature. So it was, it was, it was kind of, um, interesting, but all of them are having these secondary bacterial infections. Um, and so when we culture uh, these snakes, um, I sent out everything for culture, and we're finding bacterial species that you would find in the environment or that are naturally occurring in the mouth. And so when you see that, you think, wow, okay, something's wrong with this snake that it's allowing these bacteria to get in. Because normally they just, you know, chill in the mouth and Everything is fine, but something is causing immune suppression. And, you know, I'm sure with, with um, a lot of the keepers know that, you know, this can happen with, you know, poor environmental conditions, you know, poor nutritional status. Um, but, you know, the big one that we were dealing with was an underlying viral infection. So this can cause the immune system to be deficient. And then these bacteria that are normal flora can go and invade. 
And so by having all these tissues, I can send them out, and I got those results, which helped us understand, you know, why these animals were dying. They were dying from secondary infections. And then on top of that, I'm taking other tissues, which I put into fixative solution. Um, and this fixative is called neutral buffered formalin. Um, it's kind of uh, very similar to the formaldehyde that they use to embalm bodies. And so it preserves the cell structure so that I can have it processed and they get cut down. And then I can see the, the cells underneath the microscope. And when I look on that microscopic level, I can see what's going on in the tissues. Why are the cells dying? Is there evidence of bacteria? Is there evidence of a virus? Um, or is there no evidence of, you know, anything? Is it, does it look completely clear and we don't know why this is happening? And so... That's what usually takes, you know, a week or two to get these uh, tissues processed because they need 24 hours in the fixative, and then they have to go through a uh, machine to get embedded with wax and then cut into slides and then stained, and um, it takes a little time. But, you know, if you get with the right pathologist, they're going to rush this through for you, especially because they know it's a herd health issue, and they know that if, you know, the sooner we get uh, an answer and a diagnosis, we can help the other animals and we can potentially, you know, save uh, everybody else from getting sick. I hope that covered it. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> it, so it, it, does, it does. So basically the virus compromises the immune system enough for a normally harmless bacteria to cause a pretty bad infection. Correct, correct. But, you know, at this point, okay. we don't really know whether the nidovirus is definitely present, but we don't know if um, it's actually causing that. Okay. I don't know how yeah, to explain okay. that. Okay. So, it's, it's so more no. of a, a, cor a correlation versus a causation. So, oh, and your, your head's right. really about to start hurting with this stuff. It's a really, yeah. yeah, it'll make your head spin. <laughs> so, so oh, no, no, it was, this is... Go ahead. I mean, so it was I, like I was I was pre-veterinary, so I'm getting like half of it. So you're doing it's, yeah. it's okay so far. So, okay. um, it, so yeah, so, so I got I'm getting half is, of it. We have these animals are testing positive for a virus. Now, um, what mm -hmm. I can say about the virus is it's in a family um, called the Coronaviridae, um, and these types of viruses include uh, things like SARS in humans, um, and canines have, have coronaviruses as well. And most of these viruses cause respiratory and GI lesions. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a real easy jump to think, okay, well, these viruses could also be um, predisposing these animals. And they have found viral particles and tissues in the animals that have had this, not necessarily uh, P. and Cody's animals, but in other animals they found that have been infected. So there's research going on now um, to try and identify uh, transmission and, and causality to say that, okay, this virus is causing immune suppression and it's predisposing these animals to infection. Okay. So where did the NIDO, like, where, where, where did it come from? Obviously, it came in an animal that was in, it, it added into the Cody and P's collection, but where, any idea where it initially started, like, where this thing cropped up as and to get into the U.S. collections? I think that's a 
a great question. I think that, um, honestly, this is only my opinion, but I think it's been around for quite a while. It's just that people haven't been testing for it. So, and, and with, um, the way that the community is in the, in the Python world, you know, people are sharing animals and we don't know which strains are really virulent yet. And so there's different strains, which means, um, they're the same genetic sequence, except maybe there's a couple different mutations, and that makes them more able to cause disease. And so it's possible that there was a strain that was going around that wasn't really causing a lot of issues. And at some point, the genetic code was mutated, and it, it, it caused it to become virulent. So it caused it to be able to kill animals and cause disease, and that's why we're starting to see it now. You know, the other thing is, you know, um, you know, I, I'm sure P and Cody can attest to this, that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who uh, just accept that there's going to be mortality or deaths within their collection. And instead of investigating that and seeing, okay, was this, you know, a true, this animal was very old, you know, and it was its time, or was there something underlying that's in my collection mm-hmm. that I don't know about. And then they start trading snakes and breeding and, and things get passed around. And then it just kind of blooms from there. Right. We call that the, it's a chondro being a chondro uh, right. answer or, or write off. Oh, it's just a chondro. They just do that. And that's to be expected. But um, I think that's, you know, people that have a lot of experience with these animals, now know that that's not the case, that there's, you know, your snake shouldn't suddenly get sick and roll off the perch. There's usually an underlying issue, and it's good Absolutely. to find out what that yeah. issue is. Especially if you're, you know, you're you're doing a stellar job as, you know, a keeper. You know, most of these facilities that I've seen, you know, people are, you know, very diligent about keeping these animals in the right environment, um, giving them the right nutrition, and making sure that they're happy and healthy. And so just having it appear out of nowhere, especially when your collection is well-kept, is concerning. <laughs> right. So, and, um, and, it, and, it, and it blows. I'll go ahead. <laughs> So, you know, is this a virus that's in an animal that's always going to be there and be like a latent type virus, or is this going to be more of a chronic type viral infection for these animals? Do you know the answer to that question? I don't think we know that at this point. We don't know if they're clearing it, but, you know, we don't have enough data to make any kind of assessment at that point, at this point, you know, okay. um, I think, you know, I definitely want to give, you know, Pia and, and, and Cody props for, um, you know, coming out with this because I think, you know, other people are, are struggling with it. Um, and instead of uh, looking into it and providing more information to understand what's going on, how it's trans, how long it stays in the collection, you know, what, what people should be worried about. So, so what should we be worried about? Yeah. I can add in just a little bit um, kind of what, um, okay. what Owen was asking on what kind of when we first started seeing this, at least in the United States, um, there was, they used to call this the, or I don't know, they, they probably still do call it the uh, the ball python nidovirus. Um, and it was mm-hmm. 
basically first in like 2007, 2008, there was a few collections that were having a major die-offs of ball pythons with respiratory disease. And um, basically the first publication that was actually done on nidovirus um, was in 2012. So this, this is a, it's not necessarily a new virus, but it's basically a new virus that we're, we're able to test for and we're you know, finding out more information on. Um, and the first publication wasn't even in a ball python. It was in an Indian, pyth or an Indian python uh, with necrotizing okay. pneumonia. And then, then in 2014 is kind of when the ball really started rolling on this, where there was, I think, three papers that came out in, in all ball pythons. Uh, and that's kind of – and I, I think you can kind of relate it with the, the research was more with the animals that were, I guess, high value or there was a lot of them. And so that's kind of, um, it, you know, this may not have really originated in ball pythons, but this is kind of where most of the research and most of the information kind of has come from. Um, and, and like I said, there was in 2014 there was three papers that came out um, on basically a novel nidovirus with, you know, either severe respiratory disease or a pneumonia or a necrotizing pneumonia or um, there was also one, that um, came out of uh, Europe that was with a uh, fatal respiratory disease in ball pythons. So the information that we have so far on, you know, the papers that have been uh, publicized and things like that is, you know, that with nidovirus there is a correlation. We don't necessarily know that the causation, that it's, there is some sort of either fatal respiratory disease, some sort of pneumonia that is causing, you know, a secondary pneumonia, things like that. And that's kind of, I guess, Mm -hmm. kind of the big ticket item is that it's, you know, we're, we're seeing these thing, these two things together in multiple species and, you know, we're, we're just now being able to do the research to find out if it's, you know, is it, is it the chicken or the egg, which one came first? Was it the nidovirus or was it something else that kind of is causing one or the other? Right. Does this, does this virus target certain species over others? So is it, uh, you know, are, are um, you know, Bella susceptible, colubrids, you know, other type, of, other type of you know, lizard. So that does it cross, does it cross that those lines, or it, does it stay within a, a, a certain realm of uh, animals? Um, I, I honestly, I don't think we really know exactly kind of how this virus kind of, you know how it goes from one species to another. But the thing I can say is they, they have seen this in uh, shingle in wild shingleback skinks in, in Australia. Um, and then kind of going back to our collection and everything, um, when I was at the University of Florida, I worked with um, Dr. Jacobson, and we were sending samples um, for a nidovirus and other species uh, to a researcher um, uh, at another facility, a, a veterinary researcher. And that's kind of where... Um, I contacted him, and I knew about the nidovirus, and I knew kind of the clinical signs and everything, and that's kind of where I was like, I emailed him and asked if he's still doing research on this project because I said I, I'm pretty, this is before we actually had the diagnosis, I said I'm, I think we're dealing with this in our collection, and I, you know, I would love to send you some samples and see if we can kind of get, you know, some sort of diagnostic because there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a ton of places that are doing diagnostic testing on nidovirus, which is a, a PCR that we'd be sending out. And so 
the guy, you know, he emailed me back. He's like, yep, absolutely, we're still working on this. If you want to send me samples, send me, you know, anything you have. And um, this is kind of still in that, you know, that kind of scary moment where we didn't necessarily know what we were working with and we still hadn't gotten results back from um, from any of our necropsies of, of anything more kind of, you know, definitive. And so we went through and um, we went through and swabbed all of our all of the um, non-venomous snakes that we had, and we also did kind of a handful of venomous species as well that were in the same room just because of the way that this virus was kind of going through our collection as we we kind of assumed um, that it was airborne just because of the way that things were were you know, kind of going through the, the, the animals. Um, you know, there's a, obviously there's, you know, it could be spread from oral secretions, it could be spread from something else, but, you know, there's, there was, there was a thought in the back of my mind that it, it could be it could be aerosolized, um, and so we tested a whole you know just animals that were in a different room. We, we tested all of our um, uh, non-venomous species, which were all the Morelia species, all the green tree pythons, and we sent this to this researcher to see if if it was nidovirus. Um, and so that's kind of I think through us we've been able to test a, a fair number of species uh, where you know publicized. I think there's only the Indian uh, python, ball python, there's a green tree python, and um, I think that's it for publicized uh, species that have been tested. But we've done um, our carpet pythons, uh, we have diamond pythons, olive pythons, rough scale pythons, uh, sabus. Uh, we've done um, kind of a survey of other collections kind of that we, you know, our friends of ours who are kind of um, willing to kind of just be part of this group and, and test things. We were testing emerald boas. Um, of the venomous species we've tested, we've tested um, our uh, black mambas, Jameson's mambas, Usambar eyelash vipers, Sri Lankan palm pit vipers, and um, forest, uh, speckled forest pit vipers as well. Um, and kind of what we've seen in just our collection, and this is basically our experience, not, nothing any, you know, no, uh, official research done is that we're really only seeing it in the Morelia species. Um, the olive pythons have been negative. Um, the emerald boas have been negative. All the venomous species have been negative. And with speaking with the researchers that have been working on this project is there, it seems to be, at least the virus that we have in our collection now is, is basically just kind of linked to the Morelia species. Um, it's, is unlikely to be able to jump to the venomous species to um, some of the kind of more divergent species that we have. And, um, you know, I tell Cody all the time, thank God that we weren't only doing Morelia species, that we, you know, we would have lost our whole collection possibly. Um, but there is a nidovirus kind of in, in different species, so that's kind of another thing to think about is, you know, just because, you know, we're seeing it in green tree python doesn't mean that there might be a nidovirus for, you know, a lapis or a nidovirus for colubrids or a nidovirus for, you know, insert, you know, genre here. It's, it's you know, right. it's unknown okay. now really what, what there is. Okay. And I hope that kind so of answers, test- or, I guess, leads more questions. Yeah. How do they test for the virus? Um, so initially, the way that everybody was testing for this virus um, was uh, tracheal washes. 
I don't know if you guys know what that all entails. Um, mm-hmm. What you would do is sterilely place the tube down the trachea and still sterile stage, kind of mix up all their, you know, fluid in their lungs and pull that back and do a, a PCR test on that. And that basically looks for um, for virus particles through the DNA or RNA, depending on, um, on what they're looking for. Um, but there was a talk that I went to um, at a conference, and they were talking about doing uh, coenal swabs versus actual lung washes to find particles of this virus. And that's kind of what I, you know, discussed with the researchers is, you know, I would love to do sterile tracheal washes on um, 30 pythons in our house, but it would be so much easier to just do uh, coenal swabs. And so that's what we did initially. And they were a little hesitant on doing that, and we decided that, you know, if we got negatives on the swabs, that we would go ahead and do tracheal washes on everybody who was negative to see if we could, you know, find the virus on one way or the other. Um, And it actually turned out that the coenal swabs, uh, doing a sterile swab into the coena um, to get the cells and everything out of there, it was the the better way to find find this virus. Hmm. So... I don't know if that explains it or not. Yeah, and that's that's that, that, that's pretty much it. the the cloacal or I'm sorry the 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 wash that's Coenal. pretty much how they test for yeah, that's how they test for pretty much everything is like I, I've I've done that for respiratory infections where they want to just try yeah. to figure out what what antibiotic to describe and is that kind of out of the mix is that is there no type of antibiotic that we can prescribe for this or is it just that it's resistant to a lot of them well so i mean here's the thing is there is no antibiotic you can give to the virus um yeah kind of you know there's so. there's no way around yeah. it. There's, there's antiviral right. um but this, at the same time, not anti, like not every antiviral drug will work for every virus. There are certain viruses that, you know, viruses are just as kind of, um, you know, special as, you know, each antibiotic or as each, you know, as each kind of disease process. But not every single, there's not a one a one cure pill that will fix everything. Um, so with, with the actual nidovirus, there, there is no, there's no treatment for it. There's nothing... There's no magic pill. There's no shot. There's no you know antiviral you can you can give. Um, but there's definitely, as Susan was saying, with you know you will see these secondary bacterial infections, and that's kind of what you need to to take care of just to basically keep them in the game to keep them you know to kind of recover from from that aspect. Um, but there's you know, and that's kind of what we 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 were doing with the majority of the collection is we. We were treating for secondary bacterial infection, and I think if we didn't if we didn't do that on We're still here. Yeah, we're still here. Yeah. I think we might have lost some okay. people. Sorry. <laughs> the the car turned off, so hold on just one second. We'll see if we can get you back on. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
radio. The <laughs> 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 nice, nice technology uh, that we have. Uh, all right, we're back. Like uh, we were having te- technical difficulties in the studio, which that is uh, in the Chevy Cruze. <laughs> yeah. The Chevy Cruze of the no uh, of, of, of the pro. Uh, yep. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so basically, there there is no there's no treatment that we um, that we can do for for this virus as we know right now. Um, I mean, and that's kind of that's kind of where we're where where we are at is you know we've we basically have figured out what we have. We have isolated the animals into a completely separate building with separate airflow. We have you know tried to figure out as much as we can about this virus to hopefully in the future be able to you know have a resolution have an answer have some sort of treatment plan for you know for anybody else who is testing their animals who has a positive animal who you know want you know has this in their collection um, to be able to give an answer to so so if an animal tests positive for nido are they how are they uh, are they always going to be a carrier? Will they always test positive? Eventually, does uh, the immune system able to take the the viral loads down enough so the animal, I guess, isn't contagious anymore? Do we know any answers to those questions? Um, I think, unfortunately, we don't have any answers to that question, and that's kind of where we are at with our collection is we are doing um, serial what's called a qPCR, which is um, a quantitative PCR, which means that um, there's, there's basically two types of PCRs. One is um, what's called a traditional PCR, where you're just basically saying yes or no, this animal has the virus or not. Um, and that's kind of okay. the test that is currently available for any, you know, if you take your animal in, you say you want a NIDO, you know, a NIDO PCR, that's the only thing that is available. Um, but, you know, luckily with, you know, kind of our connections and the people that we know, we've been able, they are doing what's called a qPCR, which is available for other things but not for the nidovirus, um, where what you're actually doing is you are, you're getting a real-time um, kind of snapshot of how many actual viral particles are in the animal at that exact moment. So, so say okay. we swab a snake tonight, um, we will we will know exactly how many viral particles that snake has at this exact moment. And then say we test them again in three months, it will tell us exactly how many viral particles that snake has at that moment. So what we are doing now are we're doing serial qPCRs, which is testing for the amount of virus that animal has in their body at that exact moment. Um, so we're kind of basically doing a long-term study on kind of what what we're seeing with these animals, you know, is this something that is seasonal? Can it be, you know, you know, more prevalent at a certain time of year? Is it, you know, maybe brought on by stress? Is it brought on by something else? Um, so that's kind of all stuff that we are currently doing um, with the collection that we have right now. So, okay. you know, right now there's, so there's I, a lot of unanswered questions, but. Gotcha. So essentially the uh, there's two tests and, it's they're one's qualitative and one's quantitative, so it's kind of like the uh, difference between taking a pee test to see if you're pregnant or taking the blood test to see if you're pregnant. One just tells you yeah, yes exactly. or no, and one tells you the, the how how pregnant you really are at how that far time. Okay, right, <laughs> right. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so to me, as a keeper, can I you know can I go to my vet and say, hey, look, I you know I've acquired a new snake. It's in the quarantine process. 
can, you know, can we do a nidovirus test? I mean, will she look at me as like, you know, what's nidovirus or is this something that you can go to your, your, your regular exotic vet for, or, you know, do we need to seek you guys out for assistance with this type of, uh, this type of testing? Um, I mean, I can kind of answer on this one is this is definitely, it's kind of a newer thing. So it's not like everybody, you know, every reptile vet or every vet is going to be like, oh, yeah, nidovirus, is, that's, this is the thing that we're going to be testing for. But it's definitely something that is up and coming um, where okay. a, lot of, a lot of veterinarians and a lot of um, kind of, you know, veterinary community, you know, reptile people are, are seeing, you know, they're seeing ball pythons that are, are showing non-responsive RIs, and that's kind of where that's the next step. So usually, you know, it's it's not the first thing that everybody's testing for. It's like not, you know, a, we're, and we're using ball pythons kind of, kind of as an example because they're kind of the poster child for this, and it's, you know, a ball python comes into a, a clinic and they're showing respiratory symptoms. You know, the first thing a veterinarian's going to, they're not going to test for nidovirus first thing. I mean, they might, but... Uh, usually they'll, they'll kind of start slow and do, you know, just, a, you know, a culture sensitivity and start on some antibiotics. And, you know, nine times out of ten, that might clear it. But it's those, it's those um, you know, respiratory infections that are not being treated, they're, they're not responsive to antibiotics where, you know, okay. a reptile vet who, you know, okay. has kind of been, you know, up and coming with all the new information and kind of the new conferences that are going out and the more, you know, the more this is coming. And, you know, like I said, the first papers came out in 2014. So it's, it's not, it's not something that is kind of, uh, you know, common knowledge or anything like that. It's, it is something, you know, if you have one of those vets who's been going to conferences, who knows kind of what's up and new and what's kind of, the up and coming diseases that are that are you know kind of popping up, they will they will know what's going on. Um, but I mean, you right. can definitely uh, we will have links. I mean, we can give you links for all the papers of, and you can even do the you know Google Scholar on nidovirus and ball pythons or nidovirus and green tree pythons, and and it will pull up the the you know the publications that have this information. So you know, your veterinarian, if you you know have a good relationship with them, and they they you know can they'll see that this is something that is, you know, a, a good thing to look for. And I, and I would say definitely with, with Cody and I's collection, any, um, not that we're, you know, planning on getting a whole bunch of, of um, you know, Morelia species or anything else, but any, any non-venomous species that's coming into our house has, is going to be tested for nidovirus. So it's kind of a, a done deal here. And um, because we need to be able to, you know, keep animals separate or, you know, maintain the collection to the best of our ability. And, you know, that's, that's something that's not very common in the reptile community that, you know, you do pre-quarantine testing, you do post-quarantine testing. You kind of, you know, know, know what is in your animal when you get it, get it in. Because, you know, you can, you can definitely, you know, I don't know if you guys do tortoises or anything like that, but there's, you know, mycoplasma, which is a, a, a thing that is kind of, I wouldn't say common, but that's something that happens in, in tortoises that, you know, you can have a, a mycoplasma positive group and you can have a non-mycoplasma positive group and you kind of, you know, maintain different collections and different areas and, you know, yeah. keep your, your animals as safe as you possibly can. It's not something that, you, you know, you need to necessarily cull the whole collection. I mean, you might, but it's, you know, it's, there's things you kind of, it, if you know what you have, you can work, kind of work around it. And it is easier gotcha. said than done, you know. Yeah, it's easier said than done. A lot of people, 
may not have the ability to do, you know, the best quarantine practices that you could come up with. You know, a lot of, a lot of keepers have, uh, you know, real, real day jobs and, you know, they're, they're doing this because they enjoy it and they have a collection, you know, they, they could have uh, 20, 30 animals, you know, in a spare room and, um, you know, quarantine might be, um, you know, quarantining that animal in the bedroom or in a bathroom or, or something just, just away from the main collection, you know, they may not have the ability to have an outbuilding or, uh, you know, a property where they can, you know, kind of customize things that we're, we're like, we're fortunate to do, um, you know, we're in the process of, you know, designing our facilities and buildings and there will be multiple buildings with not, not overly, um, you know, we're not going to cram uh, a bunch of animals into a, into a, just an area. It'll be, more modest so that way if there's an outbreak you know you're not out of the game you don't lose your whole hundred something snake collection um because of a one bad bug that comes through you might you know at that worst lose 20 animals which is still a loss but you know it's better than everything um and then ideally having that quarantine area where you bring something in i know when i was in the zoo field um at the alligator farm we would have um, a quarantine entrance exam for new animals coming in, and, and we would do blood work, uh, cultures, but run the whole gamut. And uh, the animals would, would undergo a 90-day quarantine, and uh, we would observe them and, and care for them as, as normal and observe anything if we thought was abnormal or anything of that nature. And then after the 90-day quarantine, uh, we would have the vets do a, do a quarantine exit exam when the animal was ready to exit quarantine and, and go into the main collection. And also when we would bring animals in, animals would all start quarantine at the same time. And let's say a new animal got brought into the same quarantine area, quarantine would start over again for all the animals um, that were previous in there. So they might be in for two months. And some, you know, if we have another animal that came in that, uh, you know, we didn't have room for in another area, well, it would go into one building and it would be the quarantine just starts over again for everybody. And then we would do the, te- the round of quarantine exit uh, tests, which are basically the same things that they went under underwent when they were, when they came in. And to just check to make sure everything is still normal, nothing nothing has arose and everything looks normal. And then they would be um, okay to go into the main collection. Um, and, um, you know, that, that would be ideal. But, um, you know, with a lot of people, that may not be possible. So you do the best that you can. But the, 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 the scary thing is, um, if it's an airborne virus, you could be quarantining them in another room. And, and if, the, if the, you're home or whatever, um, is sharing the same ventilation system, you can definitely still have an issue. So it, it's not a foolproof plan. And currently, because we just moved back from Arizona last year and we, we acquired this collection and we brought everything in, um, basically, uh, you know, we quarantined our, our main collection in Arizona and they came in, but we brought in new animals. So um, basically everybody was back under quarantine and under observation. And uh, we haven't started building buildings yet so we were we're in the same spot as you know most other people where literally our home is our facility we have our bedroom and then everything else is all reptiles you know you could ask uh, tim morris i'm I'm sure you guys are familiar with uh, tim morris Uh, he's uh, become a a really 
close friend of ours, and he recently came out for a visit, and we did some uh, some herping and ha- had a good time. But he got to stay in luxurious accommodations in one of our uh, venomous rooms on an air mattress <laughs> on the floor. And and uh, and I was you know, Tim and I got back late, and I said, okay, so in this rack uh, on the bottom three. There's a pair of Brazilian lance heads um, and a puff adder, so don't um, end up, you know, opening one of those drawers with your toes in the middle of the night because those uh, those things have a feeding response and they'll come out and chop on your toe, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna find you you, you cold by morning. Um, and uh, and, uh, and Tim was was joking, saying my. Uh, you know, hopefully he doesn't get up in the middle of the night, let's sleepwalk and open in drawers and stuff. So our, our whole, our whole um, house is dedicated to, you know, is our, is our facility for the time being. And, um, you know, so when, when this, when this stuff happened, you know, we did the best of our ability to do the best we could work animals, uh, you know, separately from others and, take showers in between animals, not sharing equipment, forceps, uh, you know, so forth and, and what have you. And um, it's very challenging, especially when at, you're dealing with this, um, this outbreak. And like Pia was saying, at one point we were medicating approximately 15 animals every uh, 48 to 72 hours. And it's, it's very, uh, you know, they're, they're animals that, you know, you know, at this point we know that they have the virus and um, you know, you're, you, you're not what you, you want you touch them and you don't want to touch the other ones you don't want to walk from one area to another it's very conflicting because it's like you know they're you know what they they have and and this is when we're building our outbuilding to get these animals out of the out of that the, um, the hey, house hey, Cody, so outbuilding. Inter- so that was can I interject real quick before yeah. I because it's getting on 11 o'clock and I don't want to I just wanted to get this information yeah. out there is that I yeah, recently yeah, talked to one of the researchers who's working on this virus, um, and they, they did find um, viable viral particles. They were able to put it on cells and grow it outside uh, the body from both feces mm. and from oral swabs. So uh, there's a really good possibility this is coming from both oral secretions and uh, fecal matter. So aerosolized is huh. also a possibility, especially if these guys are having respiratory distress. They might be, uh, say, coughing or, you know, breathing out as hard as they can just to try and get air in and out. Um, and so you want to keep that in mind when you're handling these animals that, uh, you know, as much as you can and know that they wrap around things and that's what they do. But, you know, if you're handling multiple animals uh, to be as uh, sterile as you can between animals or to disinfect between animals because, um, you know, you could touch touch one and go on to the next one and infect it. Okay. I mean, that's if it's airborne, that that's a huge implication for, you know, I'm just thinking about even the possibility of going to a reptile show and, you know, having someone who has an animal that, you know, asymptomatic carrier yeah. that um, is at a table next to you. I mean, it's just... Uh, I don't even want to think about it. Absolutely, it's but you scary. Know, I think that that's that's happening for sure. You know, it happens in the you know um, in the fish field all the time. You know, the koi uh, koi breeders. You know, they have these <clears throat> big shows, and everybody's out and they're looking at each other's animals and water splashes, and then all of a sudden everybody's getting sick. So uh, it's definitely yeah. something that needs to get out there, and people need to be educated that just because you know they're in their containers in a sh- at a show that they still could 
uh, contract some of these diseases. Interesting. So, Susan, could you... That's another thing I was going to just say really quickly is that um, of of all the animals we have tested for nidovirus, we do have asymptomatic positive animals. We have, you know, animals that are negative. We have animals that are positive and showing signs. So there's, you know, it's, it's not just the, the ones that are, are wheezing and showing respiratory signs. There are, there are very, very much asymptomatic carriers of, of this virus. So it's, it's kind of something that, you know, it's kind of a scary thought to, to think about that there's an airborne virus that with an asymptomatic carrier that could be that, that animal that gets the whole collection sick. One of one of our best animals, and he's a he's a he eats perfectly. He sheds perfectly, defecates normally, and um, and breeds. And he has the highest viral load out of all of them. And we've had him here for over a year, and he is he is one hundred percent perfect to the naked eye. So he could he would pass a normal quarantine if you didn't do the right tests, and he would get into a collection, and um, you know maybe. Uh, he's doing great while all the other ones beside him are falling. You and, you and you go, oh, this one's healthy, but all these other ones are having issues, or it's breeding season, and everybody assumes that it's you know just the stressors of that, and it's a respiratory. They might right. get his culture and sensitivity test done. They treat the secondary symptoms, and the animal recovers. You chalk it up to, oh, it was just a respiratory, but it you know may not be. Um, so it, it could be very um, uh, deceptive if you're not um, doing the right test you know, and talking to the right people that can, you know, point you in the right direction for the right test, you know. So. Right. So um, I have a couple more questions about testing, and then we're going to – we'll go to back to Cody and Pia, and we'll, we'll – you guys – you guys it's you guys have done some interesting research with some uh, animals that you were breeding. But so, Susan, could we if, – if, you know, for instance, I brought a new animal in not long ago – if I wanted to have the animal screened for NIDA, would it, could we reach out to you and say, hey, can we have this done? And if you do that, you know, how many negative tests would would you consider to be uh, a good indicator that the animal is not a carrier for this? Wow, those are, those are some tough questions. Um, first of all, yeah, you're more than welcome to you reach out to me. Um, I don't personally do the testing. I, I send all of my stuff to UF, um, and they have a wonderful website that will give you instructions on how to do it. So if you're, you know, obviously comfortable handling your animals, uh, we can get the right supplies to you so that you can test them and then send them in uh, for testing. Um, so that's, that's no problem there. <laughs> as far as... Okay. Um, how many times you have to test? Well, um, I think that that's a really difficult question because you know one of uh, he and Cody's animals was tested I think multiple times the carp uh, the rough field python was it um, and it came up negative uh, but when we necropsied it the tissues came back positive so we don't uh, know the, the length of the the time of shedding um, and. Uh, how you know how long this animal is going to be shedding? Are they shedding only when they're showing clinical signs? Are they shedding when they're not showing clinical signs? Because some viruses really prefer to do that. Because if they're uh, shedding when they're not cl- showing clinical signs, then they have the best rate of infecting other things. Because pe- you know other animals won't stay away from them, um, and you won't stay with them because you're like, oh well, they're fine, right? So the virus can spread that way. So 
Um, I think that's uh, an unknown uh, factor at this time, and I think more research needs to be done to see how long that they do shed for and if it becomes latent, like a a herpes virus, like it can stay in the cell for a long time, and then um, if there's some kind of stressful event, uh, um, show itself again. So I would say, you know, if you're going to bring an animal into your collection, I would definitely – you know, make sure that when you're going through your animals doing feedings and cleanings and such, you do that animal last uh, and keep it in a quarantine area. I would swab it at least twice. Uh, the first time would be okay. when it came in to quarantine. And then however long you do your quarantine, say you do it for 60 days, at the end of the 60 days, I would go ahead and do it again to make sure. Okay. I think, um, yeah, I mean, go ahead. I mean, do you just foresee so we, that, we, you know, this this test is going to become just something that everyone's going to want to do or, bef- you know, before maybe a transaction is completed or before an animal is brought into a collection? Do you think, you know, is that, is that do you see that trending towards that, I, that solution I, I or idea? So. I, I, I certainly hope so because uh, I think – the fact that we can't really treat this virus, we need to look at prevention. And the best way to do preventative medicine is to test for it. And with the transferring of animals throughout collections, I think that's the only way you're going to get it under control is testing and understanding the disease and how it's transmitted. Okay. And I I mean, I I can can similar with, with BOA, with like, um, IBD, um, inclusion body mm-hmm. disease, you know, I think that should also be tested for because, you know, there's no, there's no treatment for that either, and that's fatal. So, you know, you don't want to put yourself at risk. It's cheaper to do the test for $100 than it right. is to have the rest of your collection get wiped out, and I think it should be kind of a no-brainer. And, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, if people start using it and it becomes a more uh, common test that um, they can have easier tests developed that would be uh, cheaper for people to use. So right now, you know, the PCR is the only thing available, but there are other, other ways that, you know, they can potentially develop like ELISA's, things like little SNAP tests that you can just, um, you know, look for virus um, antibodies to a specific pathogen um, that could be developed in the future if if there was a need for it. Right now, you know, that demand isn't there, and so that's why the price is so high. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, you know, getting getting the word out there, I think, is the first step, and um, getting people involved and and getting more information, and, and, you know, you want to hope that people are going to be forthcoming and say, hey, this is happening to me, too, and then we can pool all the information, and then maybe we can get a sponsor out there who would help us, uh, you know, develop a cheaper, easier assay uh, that can, you know, be um, developed for for testing for NIDA virus. I think Eric's got. Okay. I think Eric's got pretty deep pockets. What do you think about funding this one, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I was going to say is, um, so currently our protocol here is um, three negative tests is basically what we're calling a negative animal. Um, so okay. any animal that shows no clinical signs and that has tested positive or sorry tested negative three times, 
we're we're basically calling that a clear because you know the hard thing with these tests is a negative is not always a negative. It just it means that there's not enough virus in that in that test to to show. Um, but I mean a positive right. is a positive. You know it's hard to have a false positive on these animals, and so that's kind of you know our guidelines here is you know there's you know there's no way to completely know for absolute certain that there's you know absolutely no little virus particle in these animals. But, I mean, we feel comfortable saying that, you know, if the animal has tested negative to qPCR three times in a span of, you know, whatever the time frame is, and they have shown no clinical signs, that kind of is our kind of our guideline, and that's kind of a very arbitrary answer. But, it's, it's, you know, it's basically the, the best that we can do with what we have. And, you know, because because we are testing everything, we at least have a grasp of, you know, if if they're testing negative three times and they have not shown clinical signs, you know that's that's the best that we can do. Right. Yep. I mean, you've got you know, uh, the you know, protocol is developed over time and experience with time and experience. So you have to and you have to start somewhere. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Right. And I mean, at, at some point, you, you know, it's like you've tested three times. You get um, you know negative you know, animals back as negative three times. At some point, you just have to say, okay it's good enough, you know, and, 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 and fully disclose. Um, and we, we have definitely not been shy to disclose what, what, what's been going on in our collection and that we've um, been proactive in handling it. And, um, uh, just, um, you, you know, disclosing that this has happened. We've tested these animals three times and then the buyer can, can a, 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 of the animal or whoever we're talking to, whether it's a trade or whatever, um, they could decide whether they're comfortable or uh, with it or not. You know, at some at some point you gotta you gotta move on. You know, or else nobody's gonna be moving their snakes. Anything. It's like, well, it tested negative three times, but we don't know. It could be a false negative. So let's just all just you know live in fear and not do anything. Right. You know, you you do the best right. the do, you do the best you can. You um, are just aware of what is the potentials are and what to look for. Um, and then even if it's tested negative three times for from us well you still need to put it into quarantine and um you know revisit those tests just to make sure maybe that shipment or transport or whatever didn't you know compromise the immune system and and cause this virus to show itself and the viral load to be large enough to to detect um you know so that that's where um knowledge is is power here uh, you know, for corny reference, that uh, you know, you just you know, the more you know, the better, and you're you're you're, you're you know, you can um, you know better prepare yourself for that kind of stuff. But um, you know, I, de- I right. digress. <laughs> but it's it's. I mean, we've we've been talking, I guess, a lot of gloom and doom. Um, I mean, it's kind of you know, it's definitely scary. It, but I think I agree. The more people know about it, the better the better prepared we are to handle it and to be, you know, if you're aware of it, you know, that's the first, first step of, to, to preventing it. But Cody and Pia, you guys have, you know, you guys have been doing some research. You recently, you know, recently came through a breeding season and you guys, you know, Cody, you shared some information with me about some of the stuff you had also tested. Um, do you want to share that stuff and talk about a little bit about it with us? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh yeah you know like like you said it, you know it, it's um you know there there's been a lot of um doom and gloom and stuff but there's uh you, you know it's um 
Uh, yeah, there, there definitely is a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, and um, so we. Uh, one thing that I want to talk about is that we we can't possibly cover everything on a uh, you know two three hour um, show, especially kind of on first introduction, just jumping in like you know it's uh, kind of just touching on everything real quick even if i'm long-winded it's it, it still doesn't scratch the surface on everything so right um you know we want we, we want to make sure you know we're we're, we're we want to let everybody know that we're out there um if if they want to uh call and ask additional questions we don't we don't claim to be experts but you know we could provide our own experiences and maybe you know things that we've done and and maybe we can help some some people um and their train of thought and kind of stand on the shoulders of giants here and, 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 and move forward from this. So um, our, our information is public. Um, it's not too hard to find us. We, you know, we, we do have a website, terrestrialandarboreal.com. We have our references and our numbers. Um, we would, you know, I, I, there, if you want to talk to me about reptile stuff, um, you could get a hold of me at uh, Cody at terrestrialandarboreal.com. And if you want to um, uh, talk more uh, you know, medical stuff and and uh, nidovirus. You can um, email Pia at uh, Pia at uh, terrestrialunderboil.com because if you if you talk to me, I'm not going to be able to answer it as as good as she can. So if you want to talk snakes, husbandry, and uh, and uh, natural history and all that, uh, definitely give me a shout. But um, you know, and then we if we don't know the answer, we certainly can take it to um, more more knowledgeable people than us to uh, maybe not find you the exact answer, but maybe point you in a better direction. Um, and I definitely, we definitely would prefer, I prefer phone calls over uh, you know, text or emails or Facebook comments and messages because that just gets sloppy. Everybody's an armchair expert. People are going to want to go back and forth and I'm going to waste you know, half of my day trying to type out a very sophisticated <laughs> response that nobody's going that nobody's gonna listen to anyway. So may just call us, and we're happy. We're, you know, we're not shy, obviously, and, and we'll 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 tell it like it is. But um, yeah, so so back to all the good stuff. Um, you know, we were actively um, breeding stuff that came from uh, the collection we acquired. They were cycled. Um, uh, previous to us getting them and, and, and the transport of moving, as you know, can, can stimulate breeding. So we kept breeding within the colony um, of, of green tree pythons uh, that we acquired. And, um, you know, I don't know, many people may have seen uh, us posting on the various uh, Facebook forums and MVF and, and what have you on some of our um, phenomenal uh, pairings and then never saw anything past that. Oh, this an these animals locked up, these animals locked up, and then nothing, because that's when we started seeing the heart, you know, all of the, all the all, everything manifest itself, so we couldn't really, you know, do very many updates. Well, one of those pairings did right. end up taking, um, and it was um, a phenomenal pairing. It was from an animal that was... Um, that came came with our group, but was actually owned by uh, Tim Morris, um, who has uh, who has uh, like I, I mentioned before, um, has become a really close friend of ours, and it was a blue line male um, that we actually ended up um, you know just just calling the Tim Morris blue male because most most people are very familiar with the Tim Morris blue female that has produced. Um, 
you know, some phenomenal, phenomenal blue line critters over the years. And uh, we had this one, and it was um, from his line, uh, or not necessarily his line, but a lot of the, the animals that he has worked with that he is kind of um, known for. And uh, it was a blue snake from a blue line, and it was Tim's, and it was a male. So we, we basically just called it the Tim Morris Blue Male. We thought it was a fitting uh, thing for him. And he was um, one of the last direct links to the male, uh, Tim's male known as Legend. So uh, that's TW2793 for your, uh, your, your chondro um, uh, nerds out there. And he, uh, the legend was the sire. To, yeah, this, so that, that was uh, that was the sire. Uh, legend was the sire to Mister Blue. So the infamous Super Blue that had produced uh, um, uh, Brad Johnson's uh, Blue Super Blue Male Sky, and um, and and has gone on to produce some of the most phenomenal blue line animals that has ever existed. So this male was um, descended from that and was um, bred to a female uh, called Shaggy, who was um, from uh, Greg Maxwell's Carpet Man-Queen pairing, and Carpet Man was from uh, Pygard to Joe Collins. Um, uh, Those animals were uh, bred by Greg Maxwell, but both came from Trooper Walsh, and um, and, uh, that, uh, you know, that's a pretty rare lineage all on its own these days. Not too many animals that have left, especially direct, you know, right from Greg Maxwell. And I actually uh, talked on the phone today with Greg Maxwell just to kind of, um, you know, make, make make sure I was up to date on my, um, my chondro history there with uh, Carpet Man Queen. Um, so, so Carpet Man was that pie guard, Joan Collins animal. Both of those came from Trooper um, and, uh, and you know I could provide more information on those. And Queen was um, Queen was a, a Biak type uh, uh, female, um, you know, as as we understand it. So um, we were able to successfully get a clutch from that Tim Morris blue uh, male uh, to Shaggy, the Carpet Man Queen female. We got seventeen um, seventeen eggs. Um, all were fertile, looked great, and of course now this is right after the wildfire swept through the collection. Um, so we, we did the breeding. They bred multiple times. The male, uh, the Tim Morris uh, blue male, unfortunately uh, died probably about a month or so after all of that. And, um, you know, we weren't very hopeful on that pairing because most of the other pairings didn't take. Some of the animals died. Um, and we, we ceased breeding after um, after we were we knew that the virus was um, taking place, but, um, you know, with, with Shaggy and uh, the Tim Morris blue male, they were breeding. So we thought, Hey, let's, let's see if we can get a a clutch from a a, a known positive animal to a known positive animal. Now this animal wasn't in Tim Morris's collection when, you know, we got it with the rest of them. So, you know, I don't want to tie Tim down to (laughs) Tim has this too or whatever. Um, But, uh, you know, so it was another collection. We got him. It was positive. Um, He, he ended up dying and uh, we weren't, you know, to be honest, we weren't very hopeful. I mean, you you probably wouldn't be either at this point. And uh, we were basically like, well, whatever happens, whatever happens happens. Um, You know, if we get a great clutch, 
fantastic. If not, we're not going to be heartbroken because we weren't expecting for much anyway. So when we got a 17-egg pearly white clutch, we were pretty excited about it, um, you know, but we couldn't post it on you know, Facebook or MVF or anything because we, you know, we still didn't know what was going on and we wanted to test the eggs, we wanted to test the babies, and we wanted to see if these babies were going to be positive with the same virus. And we were thinking, well, because it's a respiratory-type virus, well, maybe they have to be exposed to an animal that's, um, you know, exhibiting signs and infectious, and if they're not in the presence of those animals, maybe they're good. Um, when we got the clutch, um, the the female was wrapped around uh, her mass, and there were three eggs that were kicked off to the side. And as you know, a lot of the times, some of those eggs um, that ki- that mom kicks out usually don't end up going really well in incubation. Right. Um, some of them do. Sometimes, she, sometimes she just has a massive clutch and can't you know wrap around them all. But sometimes it's just like they they kick them off to the side. Um, well. We decided to kind of have a control group of the eggs that were in the mass um, and then the three that were kicked off to the side, incubate them in two separate boxes. We wanted to do something to um, – uh, you look like you want to say something. Well, I, was, I was just going to add in, um, because we thought this was a respiratory virus and it was spread ver- uh, via aerosolized um, kind of particles and things, and with green tree pythons, you know how the female wraps her wraps her eggs and kind of breathes on them to kind of help with, you know, circulation and temperature control and everything like that. We wanted to make sure that we were testing kind of the outside of the, the egg clutch um, and also trying to see if there was particles of virus kind of on the outside of the eggs, um, possibly from mom, either via cloaca or via, um, you know, respiratory um, kind of spread. So what we ended up doing was um, we, as soon as we took the egg mound um, away from mom, we swabbed um, all those, just basically the outside of the entire eggs to see if there was any viral particles on there, um, as well as the kind of the ones that were kicked out to the side. Um, And then we kind of did our own in-house, I guess, research project on if we were able to kill the virus, if there was any virus on the outside of the egg. Um, and basically with, um, with broiler chickens, I don't know if you guys know anything about poultry, um, when they have a lot of uh, problems with bacteria and things on um, broiler chickens, so what they end up doing is uh, they take the chicken eggs and they um, basically hold them over UV light and also um, use uh, hydrogen peroxide to basically kill anything that is on um, top of the eggs. So because the problem that they have with broiler chickens is bacteria on the egg and things like that that will basically kill the broiler chicken when they hatch. Um, And so what we ended up doing was uh, kind of an in-house study with using UV light to see if we were able to kill um, any of the viral particles, if there were any. Um, So basically what we did is we swabbed the eggs um, prior to doing any UV light um, exposure, we exposed um, a group of the eggs, which was basically the, the mound of eggs, and then the three that were kicked off to the side, we used as control and we didn't do anything to them. So we ended up using um, UV light to see if we were able to kill any of the viral particles on the outside of the eggs. Um, and that was kind of a, a long process because we had to wait for the eggs to actually hatch before we were able to test the eggs after um, after the UV light and everything like that, um, which, I mean, Cody can probably talk to you more about 
what we did at that point. But um, but what we did is we we um, held UV light over the eggs to see if we were able to kill the virus. Um, and waited for the eggs to hatch, and then once the eggs were were starting to pip, we separated each egg into their own little um, I guess container um, and waited for them to hatch. And then we were able to uh, take a a little piece of the egg. Um, we kept some back in formalin. We submitted part of the egg, um, and basically every egg that hatched, we submitted to see if there was viral particles on it. Um, and we had uh, 16 out of the 17 um, eggs hatch, which is a, I mean, you guys know with, with green tree pythons, that's a pretty, right. pretty solid clutch. Um, yeah, you'll take it. Yes, it you'll is. Take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were, we were, I mean, we were hoping for 50%, but um, at this point in time, I mean, we're still, you know, everything is still, you know, animals were positive, things were dying. I mean, we're, we were probably close to, you know, 12 or 14 animals that had died at this point in time. So we're, you know, we're not necessarily hopeful, but we're, we're basically doing this to see if there's any information that we're able to, to kind of get from these animals. And... Um, we went ahead and um, as soon as the animals had hatched, we submitted the swab that we took initially of both the egg and, or the, the UV eggs and the non-UV eggs. Uh, we also submitted uh, actual eggshell from every single animal that we had hatched. Um, we did have one stillborn that was, you know, we submitted the entire animal and the egg. And when we got the results back from all the eggs and all the swabs that the all the animals were NIDO positive, we were basically crushed. Um, that the virus was still on the egg, was still, there was no, the UV light didn't do jack. It wasn't um, very promising. You, you know, at so, this point, you're, you're kind of like, okay, well, I guess we'll go burn down that outbuilding now and we'll just, <laughs> you know, get, 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 go get into some, we'll go get, go get into some frogs or something. You know, that will work well. Yeah, that'll work well. Um, uh, not like kitchens running around or so anything. Yeah, but... so we, I mean, with, right. after that process, we kind of had, had another little, another little heartbreak. Um, but what we ended up doing, because this was the plan all along, was we were going to test the actual uh, snakes for the virus as well. So we went through, and every little uh, noodle, we went through and did a coanal swab on, which. You know that in itself, I'm pretty sure could have could have killed every one of them. Well, the the swab at the time, it, you know, it was about as big as the damn animal's head, and you know we <laughs> we wanted to wait until yeah we wanted to wait until um, you know they all were eating on their own and, and got a little size before we we did that to them. But when the eggs came back and they were all positive with nida virus it was like at this point you know the, the adults are all out they're not they're not exposed to the adults then you know mostly we we just have venomous other than the morelia it, it's all venomous well, and all the morelia is in the nido building and, and all the morelia is in the nido building even uh you know we 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 kept there were four animals uh juvenile slash sub adults that uh, tested negative um that that we obviously kept um you know, in the main in the main building, which is our home, and um, and then uh, the rest of them went out uh, to the Nido building, including some of the adults that were negative because you know they're with all the uh, adults, the other ones that are positive, and um, you know it's at that point you kind of just you know say hey let's they're they're negative let's just kind of sacrifice these ones um, and and just see where this goes um, and. Um, you know, so we um, 
So we ended up testing all the baby snakes. Yeah, pre- um, prematurely because well, yeah. yeah, because we wanted to wait. But when we got the eggs back and they were positive, we were like, screw it. We need to make, you know, if they're positive, we need to get them out in that building and, and come up with, a, you know, a plan C and um, right. and uh, get them yeah. away from everything so we else. Went, we went ahead and we went through and, and swabbed all the baby snakes that we had and got the results back um, a couple probably a couple weeks later that every single one of the babies were negative. Um, and then the other thing that was kind of the kicker on it was they tested the, um, the stillborn baby that um, – we had submitted earlier, and that baby was negative too. So the thought from the researchers were that the outside of the egg that were that was testing positive was basically a contamination of the mom either from breathing on the eggs or from the cloaca on the way out. So um, so hmm. we're still we're you know we're we're retesting these animals, so we're going to make make sure that we have um, three negative tests prior to, to anything, but at, at this point in time, we have some very promising results that the babies are all negative. Yeah, which, is, awesome. which is phenomenal, uh, you know, and, it, and it's hopeful, uh, you know, for many reasons, and, um, you know, because not, um, uh, um, if somebody's not going to test their whole collection or whatnot, if you just make sure that you have a designated area for your incubation and rearing of your babies and they're not exposed to the adults, even if there might be that sleeper in your collection that might be positive, that's asymptomatic and you're not seeing any issues with, um, you know, you, you get all these other uh, these babies out of there so they're not exposed to that and you can be a lot more comfortable um, in theory uh, you know, and sleep at night, uh, being able to move these or sell these to somebody else, knowing that it's, you know, there's a good chance that these animals are not positive for the virus. Um, so, um, Very but, good. yeah, so, um, we, uh, you know, we are going to be making these babies available. Um, we're not going to be keeping them all. Uh, we're going to be, um, you know, uh, obviously splitting some with with Tim because you know he was a part he had on that mail. Um, but we will be making these available um, uh, soon. You know, there, we're, we're still going through some tease feeding trials. Some of the animals uh, have taken off. Some of them are are being pains, as you as you guys are probably very well aware. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. we will we will be able to provide those tests saying that these animals were tested negative um, and. Uh, yeah, multiple times, and um, if people are comfortable with that, well, then they can, they can, uh, they can get them. But uh, from us, but at the same time, we also, you know, want to say that, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the time, virus scares people away, you know, from from doing business with you or wanting to even shake your hand and stuff. But we, um, you know, we we are we are transparent with this. And, uh, you know, we want to say a lot of the times, you know, would you rather do business with somebody that has, has dealt with this, has been upfront about it, and has uh, proactively dealt with it? And, you know, we can provide the, the testing saying that, you know, these animals have tested negative multiple times, or somebody that, you know, may not have a full grasp on what's going on in their collection, has never had a mite, has never had a respiratory infection, doesn't get their animal uh-huh. decopied by you know, a vet and get the right test. You know, as you hear Susan talking, you could really understand how much more is involved than I think a lot of people realize and and the the importance of having a veterinarian that can um, 
that that can do those kind of things and has those resources. You know, don't don't take these kind of matters in your own hands and assume, well, just because it's wheezing, I'm going to crank up the heat, shoot it up with some Batril because I have it, thing gets better, and, and that you're good. You know, it's a, you know, don't don't just right. do it, um, you know, just because, but do it for the herd health. Do it for the the person that's going to spend four thousand dollars with you to to buy a neonate that they don't need. You know. And uh, you right. know, people put a lot, a lot of hard-earned, a lot of hard-earned money to these animals, and and then really value them and really love them. And you know, you just uh, you want to make sure that you're doing the best that you can for the the person that you're doing business with and you're dealing with. All, uh, of course, the animals. You want to make sure that they're as healthy as they as they can be, and you want to practice good good quarantine. And you know, just be conscientious of where stuff's coming from. Um, just because it's captive born doesn't mean it's quality anymore. You know, I you know, oftentimes right. sometimes I'd rather have something fresh plucked from the from the tree branch than uh, you know get it from somebody who has multiple snakes that's not practicing good quarantine and I don't really know what they're practicing in their facilities. You know, um, so you ask a lot of questions um, to, to buyers. I know that we're gonna I'm gonna definitely you know if we're buying future animals Morelli and 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 stuff in the future. I'm going to be asking these questions, and if people don't have the answers for me, um, we probably won't be doing business with them. And of course, we'll be we'll be doing our testing once these animals come here. Um, before you know, this this whole experience has really um, molded how we're going to be doing things in the future, and things to look out for, and 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 ways to design our buildings and facility to prevent. Uh, things like this from happening in the future and, and catching them before it turns into a real problem. Um, you know, so I digress. <laughs> Come up for air. Nope, that's, no, no. that's fine. That's um, good. Yep. After, great information. So we're going to, um, we're going to start wrapping the show and we also wanted to have Susan, uh, get out her contact information. That way, if someone wants to, talk to her or maybe, you know, figure out where if they want some testing done so she can point them in the right direction and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. Um, so my contact information, either you can go to my website, which is uh, fishheadlabs.com, um, and that's two H's, and it's going to be one word, so fishheadlabs.com, um, or you can email me at consult at fishheadlabs.com, um, and you'll reach me that way. And I'm available pretty often. <laughs> I'm actually, um, <laughs> right now I'm available most days, um, even on the weekend. So if something happens to your animal and you're, uh, in need of a necropsy or some advice, uh, you can reach out to me there and I'll get back to you pretty quickly. You know, I always say, you know, thank goodness for the phone, but it's sometimes it's not thank goodness for the phone cause you're tied to it. But um, right. I'm Absolutely. Trying to help the animals, and that's you know the most important thing to me is that you know these animals are uh, kept well and they stay healthy. So, if you have any yep, questions, please reach Very out. Important. Awesome. Yep. So we want to take the time to thank you guys, Cody, Pia, and Susan, for coming on and talking to us about Nido. Um, I think we're definitely going to have to do another show um, because it sounds like. The you guys are still collecting information, and um, so we we want to get you guys you know back on and, and talk about it. Yeah, we would yeah. we would absolutely I mean, love to. There's still so much information to give, and and one other thing I 
I was just going to mention, just so everybody's not completely terrified sure. of, of their own animals, is um, the nice late. thing with I should say
talking about viruses is scary for anybody. Um, I mean, obviously in the reptile community, but but it's you know I feel like we have done this, we have survived, we have you know we are hopefully coming out on the other side with a little bit of of, of you know positivity in despite right. everything that we've been been through. Um, so I mean, I, I feel like it's it's you know just because we're saying the word virus, it's not it's not the end of the world. It's not you know the the end all Armageddon thing, but it's uh, and 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 I mean that that's true, and I don't mean to go back to a little doom and gloom, but just a little honesty that we've um, you know we've we've tested um, three three uh, collections of um, of people we know here in Florida, which which we won't name obviously, um, but. Um, all the collections uh, that that were having uh, respiratory issues, we were in the area. We were there for other reasons, and we decided to just um, just test them to also get a baseline and other samples. Surveying them. Yeah, and and all of the all of the animals, to, uh, all the collections tested positive to various degrees. Um, uh, some people's uh, one person's collection was entirely positive. The other person, about 75% or so, what we tested was positive. Mm. Um, and the other person, um, like five, five out of six chondros, um, tested positive. So you know, this this is more of a uh, of a of an or you know an epidemic or a pandemic than you would than you would think. So it's something that you have to you know it's not just and these these uh, and these people had collections that were unrelated to ours or where we got ours from too, but just because of our issues and, and, and kind of just trying to investigate to, to learn more about this, we unraveled a little bit more to this. So it, it's definitely something that shouldn't be taken with a grain of salt. You really, you really should be looking for this and, and being very proactive on, um, you know, not treating just a respiratory infection as a respiratory infection, but if you have animals with respiratory, I would definitely uh, go through the proper avenues to um, test for nidovirus and, and specifically and then handle that accordingly, whether you want to go with euthanasia or, um, you know, getting a designated area for your positive animals because, as you've seen with us, we have been able to make uh, lemonade out of lemons with with our animals. So you don't have to destroy them. But you're going to have to manage them separately, and unfortunately, P and I, as a team, she this is this is what she does and lives to do. So it's great she can go take care of all the positive animals. I never have to see them or get discouraged or frustrated with wheezy animals, and I can uh, manage our collection effectively. So that works out very nice. But um, you know, if if you if you're not fortunate to have that or a significant other that's not a big fan of your reptile collection, um, you know, it may be a little bit trickier. But definitely, if you're managing two different collections, um, shower in between, like Susan said, disinfect, disinfect, disinfect. Make sure that you're um, being very conscientious between working animals, and um, you know, you'll you'll prevent um, some catastrophes. Yeah, I'd like to add also uh, with what Cody said is I've also seen animals outside of their collection who have lesions uh, that were consistent with NIDA virus as well. So um, I definitely know it's out there in other collections, uh, people who are right. very um, active in the community and trading animals currently. Um, right. So uh, yeah. I would just be very wary and out just, there. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've, no, I've known of several Chondro collection collapses that have, been, you know, the the ongoing theme was, 
uh, respiratory infections that just could not be cured that were widespread. And, you know, the thinking back then was, hey, it's bacterial, it's, you know, a super bug, a super bacteria bug. And um, But now having the information now about NIDO, and you think back, you're, you know, to me at least, like, it's quite possible this collection's collapsed because of a NIDO virus outbreak. So... It's very possible. Yep, I believe it 100%. Um, so, but, uh, you know, on, on a positive note, we would, you know, we would love to come back and, uh, you know, just talk about, uh, you know, Morelia stuff, Green Tree Python stuff in particular, maybe, you know, we, of course, we could touch on the virus because that that's going to, that's uh, unfortunately going to be a stable now, you know, be that this is something right. we have to look out for and it's, it's it's going to be in the repertoire of things and husbandry and viruses that you look for. You know, like we, as you know, we keep a lot of venomous species, and um, you know, was like with Viperidae you, you, and uh, and Curtalinae stuff. You, uh, yeah, Paramixo is the uh, virus that is the Armageddon virus, and it's a non-enveloped virus and very um, hard to get rid of in the environment, and yeah. is uh, will will wipe out will wipe out wipe out a collection within weeks sometimes. Um, so, you know, we're, you know, that's something that you look out for when you're acquiring vipers, make sure you're getting them from a clean source and, uh, you know, colubrids, we, you know, we're aware of cryptosporidium that seems to be pretty common in colubrids or not pretty common, but you know, it's, it's something that you would look for. So nidovirus and Python and Morelia, um, is just another one of those things that, you know, in our, on our, our list that we're looking for and, um, you know, but, uh, we would love to talk about just reptile stuff in general husbandry and all the all the same jazz we all you know we all go over and stuff and you know some some other fun interesting stuff you know we work with a lot of different species sure. we have uh, every species of mamba we, we've got uh, 13 beautiful black mamba eggs in the incubator right now and we're gearing up our beaded lizards for breeding well we already bred them we're we're, we're waiting on eggs and um, we've got a lot of really uh, interesting species that I think you know, a, a lot of people would find fascinating, and especially for your Morelia and Green Tree Python keepers, which are Morelia, but they'll always be Chondro Python to me. Um, <laughs> they, uh, we work with a lot of we we work with a lot of. I mean, we call them Chondros, right? It's like that's never going to die. So Chondro right. Python, uh, and uh, regard, regardless of the scientific jargon, the Chondro Python, just because I want them to be so. Um, you know, we have a lot of different tree viper species, a lot of rare one-off things that are, are beautiful that I think a lot of green tree python keepers and arboreal keepers would really get a kick out of working with and owning. And then a lot of these people that keep green tree pythons, emerald tree boas and Amazons and stuff live in states where it's legal to possess venomous reptiles. And a lot of these guys that keep these arboreals are not a fan of getting bit. So they, they're using hooks and safety equipment and they're, they're treating them almost like they're venomous. So to have to, to go from um, a, a non-venomous green tree python that I always say if, if they were venomous we'd be in a lot of trouble because they they hang they 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 move a lot differently they're a lot more powerful than a lot of these tree vipers so they can kind of uh, force their way into things but I think it would be an easy transition because a lot of the uh, keepers that don't keep venomous always say oh I never keep venomous you know and they always give you their list of reasons why they wouldn't have them but really keeping venomous reptiles is not rocket science. And, um, you know, as long as you have a good head on your shoulder and, and common sense, which, you know, doesn't seem to be so common anymore, but if you have it, um, you know, it's easy to stay safe. 
and they're not very dangerous. They're not like a mamba that can get you in the face on your best day. Tim Morris can go into detail on that. We had a little black mamba temper tantrum outburst, transferring him over to a different enclosure while he was there, and uh, I think Tim, Tim got it on camera. But, you know, these tree vipers, they hook well. They're beautiful. You can set them up in natural vivariums. And all your uh, Moralia keepers, I mean, I think I, most of the venomous, the people that want venomous that don't keep them, one of the first things they say is, I'd love to have an eyelash viper. And they are phenomenal. And they're beautiful. And, you know, we have Sri Lankan palm pit vipers that if, if their coloration was on a green tree python, that'd be a $10,000 snake. But, you know, you can get a, a Sri Lankan palm viper uh, from us, Captain Bread, for seven, you know, 750 bucks. Um, and they're beautiful and they act just like them. You just, you know, just the, the bite is a little bit worse than a green tree python. You might end up with uh, swollen <laughs> fingers, <a> missing <laughs> fingers, or things like that. Or, you know, six foot uh, under the ground by the end of the night. But, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of fun stuff we could talk about and, uh, uh, you know, kind of get people um, interested in and stuff. So, um, yeah, so, so feel free to, you know, have us on whenever. So Excellent. Uh, okay. All right. Well, thank. We certainly do appreciate it. And um, yeah, I I'm pretty sure they'll be around too. Um, thanks again, and we will be in touch with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Have All a right, great guys. week. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Have a good night. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. So, Owen, then it's just you and me now, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you, Eric left because he wanted to save his voice for Tuesday night. Yeah, well, like he does half the talking on Tuesday night anyway. I mean, you know, I carry that show. I, I just keep him around because he's the figurehead. <laughs> and I'm saying all these things now because I know he's going to download the episode and listen to it later. And I fully expect a text message of him calling me a jerk, like, tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know. Right, okay. Gotcha. But gotcha. Eric, Eric, uh, we're using our phones tonight, and his phone died, so he's leaving me the uh, task of signing out for the entire NPR crew. So, excellent. There um, you go. So, real, real quickly, your thoughts on uh, the discussion this evening? It's terrifying, but um, it is <laughs> uh, it is the, the step in the correct direction. Because you got to think about it this way, is if they found it in several other collections other than their own, how many people's collections right. uh, do people just have it and not know it? And if this is something right. that has been perpetrated, like it could be something that has been part of herpticulture for years that we just never thought of as a thing of like, oh, that one got an RI, got sick and died. Maybe something caused yep. the... Maybe the nidovirus is there, and maybe it's always been there, but maybe something that would cause the immune system to be suppressed or high levels of it are enough to affect the snake and kill it. And it's very, very scary, and I can see it definitely being scary for somebody like myself who has a lot of a Morelias, a lot of different Morelias, and where it could totally devastate. Like they said that, thank God, most of their collection was a Morelia because it seemed to rip right through that. I'm the reverse. Right. If, if something were to happen to mine, I'd lose about 90% of my collection. So that's terrible. Right. But the correct steps are being made. They're identifying the problem. They, they've come forward and admitted that they have this, which is 
way more than anybody else. Like he was, uh, Cody was saying, you could buy from a guy who tells you that he's had these problems before and this is what you can do to stop it. Or you can buy from somebody who sits there and goes, I've never had an RI and I've never had mites. Like either, either you're lying or you're just not telling us you, you, or you haven't been in it long enough to have it affected. So, right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the correct steps are being made, and I'm hopefully there'll be like a swab test later on, and then it'll all be a thing of the past, and we a thing that we all have to deal with when we're exchanging animals or quarantined. So, right, absolutely. That that'd be that would be a, the the great outcome from this. I uh, I kind of agree with you too. I wonder if it's just been around in collections forever, and that um, you know some species just seem to be more sensitive to it and. They also stated that there were several different, um, I guess, species of this virus, and each one, yeah, you know, one some one might be just there and not cause any problems, and one might be a real troublemaker. So it's uh, kind of frightening, but uh, something we definitely have to address. It, it can't be something that we just uh, bury our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't it doesn't exist. Yeah. I think I think probably I mean, who knows maybe five years down the road, <clears throat> you know, it'll be one of those things where no one will buy us, uh, you know, uh, a python without having a NIDO test. Hopefully, you know, it wouldn't be great if they're like ten bucks a piece, and um, you oh, know, yeah. two or three it, tests would definitely hope, clear it. Hopefully, it becomes one of those things like it's it's part of your essential reptile keepers kit. Like, you know, you have. Uh, Preventamite, or you know, you, you or you uh, you have your chosen mite solution that you treat for when an animal comes in, and you have your tube full of swabs to test for nido. I mean, that's might be just a thing that becomes a quintessential part of every reptile keeper's thing. And it, it and I've been a huge proponent of quarantines since I kind of got myself caught in a situation a couple of years ago where. I had a few animals get sick from an animal I did not quarantine. And, you know, I did have oh, a brush no. with mites because I didn't quarantine. So it's like I now quarantine for a very long time until I feel real comfortable about moving a snake downstairs to the primary collection. And you'd be surprised right. how many people just don't even think about it and don't do it. Yeah. And it's, it's scary. So. Definitely. So what's uh, what do you guys got for your show? I have no idea. <laughs> so it's, oh, great. I, uh, <laughs> I I totally forgot, and I meant to ask Eric, but I didn't. So I'm gotcha. pretty sure I'm going to just stick to the whole point of that. Uh, I, 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 for the life of me, I cannot remember, and I should have these things written down. But um, it's uh, – You will you will be getting a text. <clears throat> I know, I know, I will, and you know what? I at, at, after five years, I it's never going to change. He just needs to just, just it, it's fine. So right. it's going right. to happen. But uh, I know we have coming up soon. Um, we have your co-host on our show um, soon for the calendar Bill's content. coming on. Yeah, Bill won the calendar competition, so now it's going to be uh, him and Eric are going to be judging the calendars. The problem is that I think Bill has the idea that he's going to make me put a royal python in the calendar, and oh, no. I will be outvoted. Oh yeah, I'm going to be outvoted because it's going to be him and Eric against me. 
So I might lose, <laughs> and in case, I will be so pissed off for the rest of the year. But the entire month of that thing shows up on my calendar, I'll be really mad. So I don't know. Uh, we'll see, but that's I think I think that's coming up. I'm not sure if that's this week or not, but I know it's coming up in the near future. So they're trying to get it that the calendars are actually out uh, for the October Tinley show. So I actually had them on the table for people to purchase at Tinley as well as other shows nice. before January. So we got those coming up. Gotcha. Um, we have a few other guests that we're trying to hunt down. Uh, we're trying to do. We've gotten a few requests to have a some monitor breeders on again to start talking about different species of lizard as well as a few more venomous shows. And, uh, you know, so it, we will, and of course we'll always double back onto the Morelia stuff, especially with the, uh, new, uh, with all the hatchlings that have come out, th- uh, currently this year. So the new combinations, the new morphs, we definitely want to talk about that stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're just going to keep rolling, keep doing NPR until one of us is dead and then we'll stop. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, then. All right. Sounds good. So, and I wanted to thank you for coming on and, and helping out the show. I greatly appreciate it. Totally. And uh, I'll be listening I, uh, Tuesday night. Awesome. I hope your voice returns to you because I know you got a uh, you got a shout at the hospital, and you know uh, you got to make sure the right. kids can hear you. So, and that's going to be a thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right, thank you. But th- thank you for having me on, buddy. I'll talk to you soon, okay? Yeah, man, you take care. Yeah, we'll see you. All right, thank you for joining us for Nine of Virus and Condros with Cody Bordellini, the July 16th, 2017 episode. Have a good night, everyone.